Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everybody, and welcome to Jello Chow Chow, the only Chow Chow podcast that does the Jello Chow Chow. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> You're not wrong. There are no other Chow Chow podcasts. Oh, there shit. used to be. There used to be, yeah, that's right. There used to be. Happy 10 years, everybody. Um, just wanted to say as quickly as 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 soon as possible. Um, shout out to our good buddy, the Phantom Eric, who is unfortunately down for the count with a bout of covid and could not join us today. So, Eric, we hope you get well soon and um, we'll be thinking about you during this recording. Hey there, Chris and Al and the Jello Chow Chow Faithful. It's Eric Bergstrom here, co-host from, well, say the first 50 or so episodes of Jello Chow Chow. I uh, just wanted to reach out and say I'm sorry I couldn't make to the the bird with the crystal plumage discussion. Really bummed about that still. Uh, I am sitting here with my bottle of J&B. Hopefully get me through the end of this COVID spell I have. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to to be a part of this episode in any way I could still. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to mention that, you know, when Matt approached me 10 years ago to do Jello Chow Chow, I was pretty much a Jello virgin back then. Um, but, uh, I think the first movie we watched was Bird with Crystal Plumage. And since then we were off to the races. I got to see so many great movies. Uh, that one, you know, what better one to start with right there to kick you off. So it's, it's awesome that you're going back to it. Uh, Chris, I know you were stoked to talk again 
about Bird uh, after slogging through so many of those offbeat movies you guys have been doing the last couple weeks, actually months and, and years at this point. Can't believe it's been 10 years since uh, Matt came to me uh, back in 2013. Uh, but you guys are keeping it going, keeping it strong, watching a lot of great movies. Um, Bird, just my two cents on it. I think, you know, it's it's such a fun movie to watch even to this day. Multiple rewatches. Argento, he's a little more subdued, you might say, but still has uh, many great shots in his first feature film here with with, uh, you know, the spiral staircases, the beautiful Susie Kendall, and then all that fire engine red blood. Um, the the mystery, you know, you could say it's a little amateurish, uh, but still simple enough to follow and outlandish enough at parts to be fun. Like, who, who knows what a rare Siberian bird is supposed to sound like? Just crazy stuff like that. It's, the, it's those touches that really make a giallo a giallo. So uh, I think, you know, people are going to keep coming to this show to, to hear you guys talk about those, those goofy hijinks that all our favorite Italians are getting up to. Um, I love my time on the show, you know, way back when. Uh, again, bummed I missed, missed the reunion special. I hope the recording went well. As you could tell, my voice is, is coming back a little bit, but I, I still sound like a strange dub in one of those movies. Not quite right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope to get invited back for another one someday and maybe, you know, in the next 50 or so, we'll see you then. I'm your host, Chris, uh, and my co-host, obviously you heard the, um, the voice of our long lost leader, Mr. Matt Wall, AKA Creep Creeperson. How are you, sir? I am doing fine. How are you doing? I am well, very well. I also have all the way from the motherland of Jalo Films, Mr. Al Owens. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. So long. <laughs> Thank you so long. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that right away because the phrase so long is like an English thing, right? So long, like see you later. So how does that translate in the Italian language version of Bird with the Crystal Plumage? Is he... Does he have a different name, or do they call him so long in Italian? They call him uh, Sponge. I don't know. The version I had only had English on it with English subtitles, so I haven't watched the film in Italian. But in Italian, I don't think you would say so long, because even in English, it kind of doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. You could say atardi, which means till later or something like that. But right. I don't think there's a direct equivalent for so long. Yeah, that was I mean, that came up right away when I was watching it this time. I was like, wait a minute. In Italian, his nickname wouldn't make any sense. And none of that. I mean, they kept referring to him as so long throughout the movie. So mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, it's like we're watching a fucking kung fu movie or something. <laughs> Do I uh, look like a pimp? <laughs> anyway um it's good to hear your voices you guys this is the 10 year anniversary of the jalo chow chow podcast started by matt and eric back in 2013 and that's i think the that's yeah it's nuts and i think the first episode came out in november so um oh wow yeah we're like right at the 10 year cusp and um I'll get into some of the things that I 
noticed in listening to episode one last night. <laughs> but first, um, but you have you have the floor, Mr. Wall. Give us a little bit of a uh, of an update on what you're up to, what you're doing with your okay. your career and your life here. Well, I am um, back in L.A. I think um, the last episode I was on, I was back here. Yeah, um, I, I remember that. Um, yeah, I'm just um, doing a bunch of poetry shit and like running workshops and putting books out. And um, but there's all sorts of shit happening. There's um, I mean, we've been filming it a little bit, but. There's a documentary being made um, about me right now, which is kind of weird. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's and, awesome. Like what I didn't realize is that um, next year is the 20 year anniversary of Creeperson. It's actually technically this year, but the first album came out in um 2004 oh wow so um oh wait no no no. that's right 20 yeah okay we're good yeah 2004 20 years and then um like uh it's been like 15 years next year since i've made like vaginal holocaust and all those really trashy flicks and then um 10 years since uh the black star canyon books came out so okay memories trying to like nail all of these fucking things and um so i don't know it's just it's a it's a weird time i don't know what the fuck's going on i'm just trying to like enjoy myself and smile as things happen so sure i mean what else is there I don't know. I think uh, you said that you might be in Philadelphia, say next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, part of the documentary, there's supposed to be um, a thing where we're doing a bunch of shit in Philly. So, um, yeah. So that, uh, like, I, like I'm, I'm just waiting for people to tell me when to be places. So, um, yeah. So that's, that's awesome. Be. Yeah, because I'm going to like fucking do a bunch of dumb shit and get you in trouble. <laughs> if the cops don't come, we fucked up, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, did, were you approached to do the documentary or did you seek out the people that were doing it or how that come to be? No, it's actually, it's a long, stupid story, but the short version is somebody wanted me to do something in another documentary. And then while we were putting shit together um, and the dude was asking me about me and my life and all this other shit, it was like a book thing, like a old pulp documentary. Oh, okay. Then he got all kind of um, interested in my life. And then it turns out that one of the producers on that documentary is actually someone who was a producer on a movie I had made like 10 years earlier. Oh, wow. And, um, she's been following my work ever since and has been like reading my books and all this shit. And so it just all kind of snowballed from that. 
Cool. Um, so what about I remember last time we talked and just um, for the people who may be playing along, uh, the last time Matt was on the show was May of 2022, where we talked about a hyena in a safe. <laughs> um, and I think at that point or maybe in a couple of previous episodes, you were talking about um, doing some wrestling. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. that ever pan out? Um, no, just because I kept fucking injuring myself. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I did the training and did all the shit and COVID fucked a lot of that up. And then, um, I threw my back out after working out, yeah. which was fucking stupid. And then, um, my knee exploded and my knee is just now, um, getting to the point where it doesn't hurt all the time. Ugh. Um, but yeah, like I tore my meniscus down the middle, tore my ACL and my PCL. So, um, my knee was a fucking mess for probably about a year and a half. So, mm. and since I'm now feeling better, like I'm not very interested in running around and having a bunch of 90 pound jackasses try to swing around my neck. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, one of the things that uh, I'm becoming uh, blatantly aware of these days is that it's not easy to get old. It uh, it comes with a lot of aches and pains that you don't know why or where they originated from. It just sucks. <laughs> Like, I'd be happy if, you know, I had a sore something and said, oh, I know why I'm sore. You know, my neck is sore because I went to the Slayer concert last night and, <laughs> you know, I banged my head for three hours because um, I remember those those mornings waking up after a, a punk rock show or a, yeah, a metal yeah. show and feeling sore. And now I get up and I'm like, well, I didn't do that. All I did was watch uh, three episodes of Fargo and, and went to bed. So, like, why does my neck hurt? You know, so. <clears throat> yeah, I um like I'm not trying to be all weird about this, but like I uh, like as much as like my knee, like I fucked my knee up. But other than that, um like I'm in better shape now than I've been in since I was probably I don't know, early 20s. And well, That's good. Um I am doing very well in, I don't know, uh, how do I say this, in a town full of younger women with daddy issues. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to put that. But yeah, I may I, need to move there, me and my dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we are off on a tangent as we as I expected we would, but um, I just wanted to say a few things. Again, this is the 100th episode, and we are going to talk about um, one of the most important giallo films ever made, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage by what? Dario Argento, of course. And um, let's see. I have a couple of things on my to-do list here before we get into the film. 
And um, the first one is, oh, and by the way, I know that uh, I had said I was going to go to this Italian um, horror movie festival uh, in November, but I ended up getting the dog and I just didn't, I, I couldn't do it. I, I, you know, I, my mother said that she would come and watch the dog. I'll come and watch the dog for you while you go. I'm like, I can't in good conscience sit for 10 hours in a movie theater watching films I've already seen while my 82 year old mother watches the puppy. So, um, I, I, I opted out. So I have no idea how it went, but they had apparently the girl, the little girl. I know Matt loves this little girl, the little girl from house by the cemetery, the Fulci film. Um, she was there for a Q and a and, uh, signing autographs. And they also had, Somebody dressed up as Dr. Freudstein in the in the lobby, uh, hanging out with her, and I guess you could take pictures and whatnot. So, um, I mean that that would have been worth the price of admission right there. But um, they showed a 35 millimeter print of Tenebrae in Italian language, um, and they also showed the uh, the house by the cemetery. And a Sergio Martino film about an alligator, I think. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen that. It's obviously like a horror creature movie. And then The Sweet Body of Deborah. And then after that, they did uh, the Michel Suave, uh, Della Morte, Della More, a.k.a. Cemetery Man. So it was a really good lineup. Um, and I'm kind of pissed I didn't get to go. But I did stay home and, and watch... Um, stuff in my house that night so anyway um i wanted to direct everyone's attention if you haven't seen it yet to go to the facebook group and feast your eyes upon the glorious three-part animated gif that al created for our previous episode for the uh shadow of death and uh al i mean I, I don't know what you're going to do next, man. And you, you keep outdoing yourself with these things. So, um, Matt, if you're not aware, um, uh, Al decided, I guess, arbitrarily or just spontaneously to start making animated GIFs related to the film that we just covered and um, put them on the Facebook group. So the latest one is a three-part tribute to the split-screen effect that was being used in Shadow of Death. Nice. And it's it's so cool. I don't even know. I mean, I, I won't even. I don't even have questions to ask. Just Al, just give me give me some details on this. Like, how did this come about, and what gave you the inspiration, and how did you pull this off? Okay. Well. Um... I had started the project thinking I was going to do it about dimples because in the episode <laughs> you specifically said, Hey, why don't you do a, a GIF about the, the dimples, right? The butt dimples specifically right. Matt, we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. 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 And yeah. here's a tease. I did finish one about the dimples the other day, but at the last minute I decided I can make it a little better. So there is a dimples gif coming <laughs> but as i was skipping through the film i caught that scene uh it's in the part three gif 
Right. You see Denise's reflection get up before she does. Yeah. And that drew my attention to the split screen. And in the episode, I was commenting about how great the split screen work was. Uh, So I thought maybe I'll do something about that because I have to let the world know that the reflection stood up before she did. And that was a big (laughs) goof. Right. (laughs) So I went back and I watched all the different split screen scenes. And I think there were five of them in total. Okay. And I just kind of thought instead of just crapping on this one mistake that they made in that one scene with the reflection, why don't I just kind of compare like a, a good version or a, a, a good split screen effect with uh, another one that's kind of good, but still not perfect. And then one that's just a absolute uh, mistake. Right. And that's how that came about. Well, I mean, and, when I, when I first saw it, I thought, you know, based on the conversation we had about the film, I know we went off on a tangent where you were talking about how, um, you know, the the film students and the the overly academic film people um, spend a lot of time with big words and, um, you know, a- analysis of parts of the film that really don't need to be analyzed. And I thought maybe this was supposed to be this, a sarcastic um, response to that discussion. And maybe it was in part because it just seems very um, academic, but I thought it was really well done. I wouldn't have even noticed any of that stuff. So. Well, maybe subconsciously that was in there and (laughs) In the title of the three-part series, I did use the word ovum. So, (laughs) uh, and for those who haven't run to the dictionary yet, split ovum indicates that we're talking about twins. Uh, Right. So maybe that was just me kind of goofing on that uh, (laughs) that kind of arrogant film student mentality that I was mocking. But it, it wasn't conscious, I guess. Maybe it's just me having fun cosplaying as an arrogant film student. <laughs> Dude, I I seriously think that you could take. Um, hold on, I'm waiting for it to 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 reset on the loop here. Uh, <laughs> split ovum equals split screen. Uh, a critique of split screen use in Shadow of Death Part Three. I mean, that sounds like. A final paper. That sounds like yeah. a ma- it could be a master's thesis. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> or at least, yeah, at least for your 300 level class. Um, yeah, maybe I can get a bachelor's in geography. <laughs> <laughs> but the greatest part is when you finally get to see part three, and they sh- and 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 Matt, I'm sorry, and Al um, highlights where the split screen was, and then calls out. The reflection of the actor getting up before the actual actor gets up and then it goes black and it says unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's just it was. I was i was showing that gif to my son and you know, he doesn't really watch these movies he could really not care less but I was showing him how the split screen worked and how, you know, all this analog filmmaking is like another planet to him. 
you know, he was born in, after 2000, so he's used to CGI everything where that's not an issue. Right. But the on the right-hand side of that screen where they're filming Peter and the window, there was no need for the actress to be on the left side to create the reflection in the first place. Right. And it's just... I don't because nobody would have noticed if we see her stand up on the left side and there's no reflection in the window. It wouldn't have entered anybody's mind. And I couldn't believe that I didn't notice that until after we'd recorded the episode. So I, I felt there's some way I got to let the world know that I caught this and pat myself on the shoulder. But mm. so it turned into a, a three part epic geography. <laughs> uh, but I will say the one I'm finishing up right now is I think is going to be the best one I've done yet. And after right. that, I'm going to go back to doing just like little 10 second quick and easy, stupid shit. Like, uh, like the very first one I did. <laughs> Cause it's, it's too much work. Now, like I said before, you are a, um, a slave to your art for sure. But I do uh, eagerly anticipate the butt dimple uh, animated GIF. Um, okay. That'll be the best, of course. I um, think so. Yeah, yeah. that sounds really good. I, I'm interested. So. <laughs> and it turns out there's a term for those. And that's going to be the title of the GIF. There's a term for butt dimples? Uh-huh. Oh, okay. I, don't say any more. I can't I'm not going to spoil it. Yeah. Thumb holes. <laughs> ah. Oh boy, that was that was quick. I, I, yeah, well, shit. <laughs> well, that's better oh. than candle holders or yeah. ashtrays. You know. yeah, gotta hold on to something. Like. Thumb holes. Um. We would be remiss if we didn't say uh, rest in peace to Poopy Avati, who passed away very recently. And I just did a quick IMDb on him and didn't realize that he was directing films all the way up until this year, I think. Oh, shit. So was it um, Poopy Avati? Poopy Avati. Yeah. OK, well, Aldo Lado passed recently. Oh, he did. Shit. Okay. They're all dropping like flies, these Jalo guys. Um so we know Poopy Avati from the house with the laughing windows, and I haven't watched that in quite a while, so it's probably due for a rewatch. But there's another film that Poopy Avati did in the eighties called Zader or Zeder Z E D E R. And it was also called Revenge of the Dead. And in America, the video cassette cover for revenge of the dead featured this animated zombie crawling out of the sewer uh on a city street and when i was a kid i saw that and i said oh i can't wait to rent this because it's obviously just like gates of hell and zombie and house by the cemetery and it turned out to be a giallo which i of course don't even remember anything about it and it had nothing to do with zombies and i was super pissed that they sucked me into this um, film on false pretenses, but um, it's due for a watch for me. I have a copy of it. So I think I may in tribute to 
this man. Um, watch that this weekend. Um, it stars Gabriel Lava, the guy who played Carlo in Deep Red, the son of the of the mother. Um, mm-hmm. So he's a recognizable face, but it is a, a it is a Jalo esque film from the eighties. Um, so I'm I'm intrigued now, especially with the the passing of the director. But I didn't know that Aldo Lotto also died. Yeah, what was the Aldo Lotto movie we did on here a hundred fucking years ago? Um, he did too. He did Short Night of Glass Dolls. He did Who Saw Her Die. Yeah. Uh, and Who Saw Her Die is really really classic giallo film um he also did night train murders which i have never seen oh yeah 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 dude and is is night train murders more of a like revenge movie or yeah it's, it's a, kind of like um what is like it, the last remember, house on the left yeah I, i'm trying to remember which one came first I don't remember. I know that they're both based on the Virgin Spring. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, 1972. uh, Night Train Murders, 1975. So. Yeah. There you go. And the Virgin Spring. I've never seen that. Is that uh, that worth a watch? Yeah. Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Cool. Igmar Bergman is a mystery to me. I've never watched any Igmar Bergman films, and I think it's partly because his name gets me confused with a female actor whose name is similar. Is it Ingrid? Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. Are they related? I used yeah. to think so, but I found out that maybe they're not, or they actually they aren't. Maybe Bergman in Sweden is like Smith in yeah. the States or you know something like that. Patel. Interesting. So I did not know that Aldo Lado uh, recently passed. That's interesting. Yeah, 2023. Okay. I mean, if I recall, he looked like shit back when we were talking about him 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> So shit. He's definitely old, but um Pupiavati, the the picture of him that I saw recently, um which is actually on the Chow Chow page, he looks pretty good. I mean for an old guy. You know, there's only so good that you can look, but um yeah. I did listen to episode one because I just felt nostalgic yesterday. And um I think my favorite part of episode one was when Matt came to the realization that Jalo films uh, seem to emphasize style over substance. My biggest complaint with Argento is that he's way style over substance. Yeah. And I will say that till the day I die. And I know a lot of people might not agree with me on that but he makes really pretty pictures but sometimes they don't fucking make any sense and it for (laughs) someone who likes really good stories it irritates me a lot Uh, and uh we'll get into the 
when I realize when when Matt realized that on the first episode when we get through the movie, but I have to say that in watching the bird with the crystal plumage Friday night, and I was you know completely prepared to watch it without stopping, without pausing, without grabbing my phone and looking anything up while I'm watching it, and I did pick up a lot of stuff that I never noticed before, that I never paid attention to before. And I know it's partly because um, I've been watching so many of the films that lead up to this film. But um, some of the stuff I picked up in listening to episode one, where Matt and Eric were talking about the film, and there were certain things about the film that I just always assumed were presented in a certain way as to depict a certain perspective or point of view and those were called into question by matt and eric in the first episode um so it was kind of an eye-opener to go back 10 years and listen to um to listen to you guys do that i thought it was awesome guys want to get into it i'm good to go if you guys are yeah I, I i have it on in the background and i'm just in love with her boots so yeah yeah and some things never change because that is the very first thing you mentioned 10 years ago are you serious yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're like i don't you know you yeah. started talking about i don't understand what's going on with this typewriter and everything but never mind because look at those boots Now, this right here is one of the things I love about these movies. This chick is wearing, like, thigh-high boots and a super short dress. Mm -hmm. So hot. That is such a hot look. Like, every woman needs to be doing that again. Like, that was just amazing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, it turns out that um, we are ready to do our um, our deep dive here. And I will say that, once again, we are going to be talking about Dario Argento's 1970 film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage.
Matt, I'm sure we'll get into some of the details, but um, it's important to know that this was Argento's first film. It was financed by his father. Um, and one of the things... Oh, okay. So one of the things that I did take away from episode one was that um, Matt and Eric didn't really know what the connections were between this film and the Screaming Mimi novel. Um, I felt ambitious last week and tried to get a copy of it to read it, um, but never did. But I do know that there are three things that share similarities with this film. The first one is that um, there is some piece of art that is kind of the center of the investigation for this slasher, like for this maniac on the loose. In the book, it's a statue, and in the film, it's the painting. Uh, the second one is that I think the main protagonist is a writer, an alcoholic. There, There's a serial killer on the loose. And I also think that in The Screaming Mimi, there's this gender-bending thing going on. And so I think Argento took those three things and used them as inspiration for the screenplay. Uh, I actually got the book years ago. Did you? tried reading it, and it's it was very drab for yeah. me. Very drab read. Well, I'm so, glad I didn't go down that route. So, I mean, it's short. It's not like it's <clears throat> gonna like knock you out. But I have this rule that if I read like 20 pages of a book and I'm like wanting to kill myself, I'll just burn the book. <laughs> so. Is that like the first 20? Well, yeah, you don't want to read the last 20 before you start reading the book. Well, no, I mean like you could you could read the first I don't know 60 and be intrigued, and then the next 20 is terrible. Oh, no, no, no. I never get that far. If I'm into a book in the first 20 pages, like, I'll blow through the rest You'll of it. You'll stick through it. Okay, gotcha. Oh, that's I kind of like how I time. am. That's kind of like how I am with TV shows. Yeah. Series. I'll give it, like, three or four episodes, and if I'm not hooked by then, they could have ten seasons after that, but I don't care. Right. Like, honestly, giving it four episodes, that's... It's a lot. Yeah, like, that. good for you, man. I just, like, like life's too short, dude. I got so much shit to do, and I got <laughs> so many fucking things to go see and fucking live life and all this other shit. Like, I'm not going to spend my time reading bad books. I, I wasted way too many years reading shit books. No, you, you're, you're probably ten times more of an avid reader than I am, Matt, so... Because I think that's like part of your, you know, it, that like my thing is, you know, watching movies when I have free time. But, you know, sitting down and opening a book, you know, it's probably a little bit lower on my priority list. I've been trying to read a little bit more lately, but uh, it's it doesn't. Um, it's just not a lot of good stuff out there, dude. Yeah. So I just read recently the latest king book about holly um which i liked very much but i'm i'm oh, cool. up on that i'm up on that whole series so the mr mercedes like yeah saga but anyway um love that door what was i gonna say um <clears throat> oh so anyway everybody we're gonna spoil this right away um if anybody doesn't know who the killer is in bird with crystal plumage you should probably stop now and just go watch it. Um, it's we're gonna the lady in the black coat. <laughs> it's the lady in the black coat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, 
for no fucking reason. But she's not in a black coat when we first see her, um, which is a really big point of contention on episode one. And we'll get into it in a minute. But um, there are plenty of ways to see this film. I think Tubi has a copy of it for free. There's copies on YouTube for free if you can put up with commercials every minute and a half. Um, Don't chase your- me, dude. I've been watching it on YouTube and there hasn't been a single commercial. Oh, all right, good. So I, I don't know how that algorithm works. I think maybe they they know that I spend more money online, so they just send me more commercials. I don't know. Uh, the Arrow Blu-ray that I just picked up um, recently was fantastic. I enjoyed it very, very much. And I know that there is a 4K version. Um, does that make sense, 4K? Yeah, yeah. There's a 4K version, and, of course, you have to have a 4K ultra hd blu-ray player and a tv that's all compatible um and i do not so and i think blu-ray is fine um you know we don't once you start getting into 4k i feel like you're watching you know everything looks cgi to me so um but uh yeah i watched it the other night and um it's it's still really really good i won't spoil anything at, at the moment but it's still really one of my favorites so al um do your best at um describing everything and anything that you can find on this movie with regard to production credits notes and what have you okay well as you've already stated this was based on a novel the screaming mimi by frederick brown which was published in 1949 By the time this film came out, a previous film had already been based on that. It came out in 1958, and it starred Anita Ekberg, who Jalu fans might remember from French Sex Murders. And Uh, Italian cinema fans in general would remember from Fellini's La Dolce Vita. The, The film director, Bernardo Bertolucci, who had worked with Dario Argento on writing parts of once upon a time in the west had acquired the film rights for the book and introduced the book to dario argento dario wrote a script and gofredo lombardo head of titanus films was impressed enough to greenlight the project the director's chair was first offered to lucio tesari who later went on to direct Bloodstained Butterfly. Uh, he turned it down. Then they offered it to Terrence Young, who had directed three of the first four James Bond films. Sure. He turned it down also. Finally, Dario Argento was chosen, and he brought in his father, Salvatore, to be the producer. Uh, this film is produced by Seda Films, which was a company started the year before by Salvatore and Dario Argento. The co-production company was CCC Filmkunst of Berlin, Germany. So this is an Italian and, at the time, West German uh, co-production. During the filming, Dario did some rewrites with Aldo Lado, who we just discussed, and recently mourned um the filming elements that bava 
well, elements that Argento and Lado brought into the story were taken from Bava films, especially uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood and Black Lace. Elements such as uh, the the apparent victim of a murder actually being the victim. No, actually being the, the assassin or the killer. Right. And a killer in a raincoat, hat, and gloves. Filming took place mostly in Rome. Uh, the exteriors were shot in the Flaminio Quartiere, which is a residential district. Uh, the interiors were shot at the Paulus Studios. And the brief scene at the race course uh, was shot in Naples at the Agnano race course. In the middle of filming, Argento was almost fired by Lombardo. But Dario's contract was ironclad, and that saved his ass. And I think probably the fact that his dad was the producer might have had something to do with it also. Did it say why he was going to be fired? Uh, the information I had was just his inexperience as a director, okay. which led me to believe that uh, there were things that could have gone a little quicker and smoother if he knew what the hell he was doing. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, you know, what's interesting, I'm remembering back to episode one, there was a discussion about this between Matt and Eric, and I don't know if this was inferred, but someone with decision making power got a chance to look at some of the dailies that Argento had produced and said, this is really scary. Um, and that was an influence to keep him on, besides the fact that he had clout, yeah. obviously. Yeah, I remember but, that. Yeah. But who knows if that's true? Okay. The film is distributed in Italy by Titanus Films, uh, which is the, the company that got the ball rolling and for which Lombardo, who had tried to fire Argento, worked for. In Germany, it was distributed by Constantine Films. Most of and, the places it was... And, re- oh, go just, ahead. To inter- just to interrupt, Titanus Films' musical intro is the one that's used at the beginning of our podcast. Oh, okay. Dun, 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 that one. Right. Can, you, can you do that one more time? Ciao, ciao. Oh, that one. Oh. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Of course, there's no chow chow there, but go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Uh, For most of the world, the title did not change. It just translated, for example, into Spanish or French. In Britain, however, the title was changed to The Gallery Murders. In Germany, it was released as Das Geheimnis der Schwarzen Handschuhe, which is the secret of the black gloves, which is a little bit of a head scratcher. And speaking of head scratchers, in Japan, the title was changed to The Poison Fang of Joy. So, go figure that. It was uh, released. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, like, do you think, like, did the Krimi thing already die in Germany um, by this point? And calling 
attention to the black gloves? Was that like a way to get like German audiences to go, oh, it's like one of these like gloved killer movies that we used to really like back in the day? Well, I know that in doing research for the the production notes for this, I came across a creamy, well, a film that I would have considered just from the title, probably a Jalo. And when I looked at it, I saw that it was considered a creamy and it came out in 72. Oh, okay. So I think it was still, maybe it was in its last kicking dying breath at that point. Yeah, I think that's the, but, the, the tail end of the, the crimmy, you know, uh, filmography, the, the early yeah. 70s. Yeah, so there's probably a couple of years of overlap. And I could see the Germans uh, trying to market it towards something that they already knew was successful as opposed to, you know, well, I don't think anybody really understood that this was going to start an entire movement that would last through the 70s and into the 80s when it came out. But just the the secret of the black gloves that, I don't know, it's kind of nonsensical and a little oversimplistic for me. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. As we know, Dario Argento, this is his first film. He went on to have 27 credits as of this date. He had started his career as a film critic and a writer. And uh, his writing for the film, uh, the Italian title was Metia Cena di Sera or something like that. The the translation is uh, think about uh, the dinner or think about what happened at dinner. And it was a film that had Tony Musante, who is our main character in this film. He was in that. And also in that film was Lino Capilocchio, who we know from The House with the Laughing Windows. And interestingly, Florinda Balkan was also in that film. And she went on to be in uh, Lizard with a Woman's Skin, Don't Torture a Duckling, and Footprints on the Moon. It was his writing in that film that impressed Goffredo Lombardo enough to... Uh, to buy his script for this and give him his shot. Okay, the cinematographer. You know, I just have to say for a second. um, Okay. It's so great to have Al on the podcast because until just now, I always in my head said Tony Mustaine and not Musante. Never in my life did i ever consider that that guy's name was tony musante it's one of those things where i just read the last name too quickly and i thought his name was tony mustaine i didn't even know that's who he was talking about so i'm glad you cleared that up because i thought <laughs> the same thing dude tony mustaine it's and the, the t as in isn't anywhere near the s but what the fuck man like it's what is uh, that the uh what do they call that just dumb american shit <laughs> Yeah, it's not anything more than that. <laughs> I think they call that dyslexia. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. And Tony Mustaine, he's in Megadeth, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what I was or, thinking. Like, is that why we said that? Like, probably. Shit. 
Yeah, he's probably in the uh, the Italian Megadeth tribute band. Some <laughs> guy. Okay, uh, cinematographer Vittorio Storaro. He has 88 credits, including Jalo Wise, Fifth Chord, and Footprints on the Moon. He went on to win three Oscars, his first of which was for Apocalypse Now. And I forget what the other two were. The editor is Franco Fraticelli. He has 187 credits, including all of Dario Argento's films through opera. But he also edited My Dear Killer and an interesting film for me, 1994's Roberto Benigni film called The Monster, which is in a way a spoof on Jalo films. And I don't think anybody in the English speaking world might have seen it. But uh, if you get a chance, I highly recommend that one. The music. I'm sorry. Put that on the list for the show, guys. Il Mostro. Yeah. I uh, I have a rip of it somewhere. I have the DVD also. But um, I've been working on English subtitles for it because eventually I want, you know, to help other people see it. But, um, yeah, we can put that on the list. So right now you can't watch it and even watch it with subtitles? The first time I saw it, I was still living in the States in Tennessee, and somehow at a thrift store, I found a VHS copy of it with English subtitles. Uh, I don't know if there's been an English-friendly DVD release. I doubt that there's been an English-friendly Blu-ray because it's not one of Benigni's bigger films compared to, like, Life is Beautiful and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, I'll look into it, but I was kind of just put uh, doing the subtitles myself. There were some deleted scenes in the international version that when I found a rip of it, I had gotten the original Italian version that I didn't have subtitles for. So I was just kind of filling in the gaps, but okay, we can, we can work that out. Yeah. Okay. The music. Ennio Morricone, and if you don't know who Ennio Morricone is, uh, why are you listening to this at all? (laughs) He has 531 film credits, and this was his first Jalo that he did. And looking through his uh, composing credits in in the filmography, I counted at least 16 more Jolly that he had done uh, through the 70s and into the 80s. And that is why he deserves a criteria on the Jalo score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Oh. Okay, moving on to the cast. As we said before, Tony Mustaine of <laughs> Mega Morto plays Sam Dalmas. Mega Morto. Our... <laughs> huh? It's uh, funny. Okay. Sorry. Okay, he plays an American writer who is in Italy, and he's about to return to America when he witnesses what he thinks is an attempted murder. Spoiler. He has 67 credits. A lot of it is television, 
And Tony Musante, if you can't guess from his last name, is an Italian-American. He was born in Connecticut, and he passed away in New York. In this same year, 1970, he starred in The Anonymous Venetian with Florinda Balkan again. And he played the main character named Enrico. So the title of The Anonymous Venetian is yet another head scratcher. (laughs) But that might be worth watching if you enjoy films that are shot in Venice, which I do personally. Susie Kendall plays Sam's girlfriend, Julia. She has 32 credits. And I thought she would be in more jolly, but the only ones I recognized on her bio, uh, filmography were Torso and Spasmo. And when I think of Susie Kendall, I automatically think of Torso over this. Yeah, yeah, me too. Okay, there's a police de- inspector in this film named Inspector Morosini. He is played by Enrico Maria Salerno who has 123 credits, including the aforementioned Night Train Murders. And this is where the canine aspect that we mentioned earlier comes in. (laughs) He was in a film from 1976. The Italian title was Bestialità. You can guess what that is. The English version, well, the English title was called Dog Lay Afternoon. (laughs) And... (laughs) It involves a young girl who is traumatized by witnessing a sexual act perpetrated by her own mother and the family Doberman Pinscher. <laughs> and Why I don't know. That? Huh? Why aren't we watching that? <laughs> yeah. Somebody needs to call Criterion and tell them to get their heads out of their snooty asses and put that out. Okay, also in this film, we have a an artist who eats a lot of pussy. His name, the character's name is Berto Consalvi. He's played by <laughs> Mario Adorf. Oh, you got it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm watching that right now, actually. Go to blazes. Yeah, yeah go to blazes. Great. Okay, Mario Adorf has 221 credits, and he is in a lot of Italian cinema from the 70s and into the 80s. And even now, he's doing spots on TV shows here and there. Uh, Jolly fans might know him better from Short Night of Glass Dolls, and he's also in What Have They Done to Your Daughters. Uh, Let's see. I I remember that Matt and Eric were talking about how he was billed as special guest star in the film yeah. of Bird with Crystal Plumage, because I guess he, he got almost top billing because of how famous he is in Italy. Yeah, he, he I come across him all the time. And hey. he was actually in a Sam Peckinpah film with Charlton Heston called Major Dundee, which came out earlier in the 60s. Mm. Wow. He's not the guy that plays God in Four Flies, right? No, different guy. Different guy, okay. I That's just, the I'm guy. See, the I'm guy seeing, who plays God and Four Flies was in the Popeye movie. I think. Yeah, I, I'm just like confusing faces right now. Do you guys remember the Popeye movie with Robin Williams? Fuck yeah, I remember mm-hmm. the 
I think the the blue Brutus Bluto character is that guy. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Um, Mario Adorf was in almost every Polizio Tesco that came out. So if you've seen the Fernando de Leo films or uh, basically anything with Henry Silva or Maurice Melvick. He's in a lot of those. And he was in a lot of spaghetti westerns before the 70s. So basically, if you watch any uh, Italian genre film, there's a 50-50 chance that he'll show up. Okay, in this film, uh, the woman who Sam sees being attacked at the beginning, her name is Monica. Monica Renzi. She is... No. Monica... Ranieri. Well, that's interesting. Oh, okay, Ranieri. Okay, I screwed up. Speaking about dyslexia. Okay, she's played by Eva Renzi, and she is a German, so I guess the German co-producers slipped her in. She has 32 credits. A lot of it is German stuff I've never heard of, but she was in a giallo called Death Occurred Last Night, so she stuck around Italy at least long enough for that. Yeah, Matt and, husband, covered, Matt and I covered that. Um, I think we were lukewarm on it, but. Okay, I haven't seen that one yet myself. Her husband, Alberto, is played by Umberto Rajo. He has 137 credits, and he's pretty deep in the jolly. He was in Mario Bava's Baron Blood, which I understand isn't a jollo. But then he went on to do Cat of Nine Tales, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, a muck and tropic of cancer nice those are the main characters but one of the less than main characters that i thought was uh, noticeable was the fourth victim she is played by rosita tarosh or she's credited in this rosa taro or something like that she has 52 credits and you can see her again in spasmo and also footprints on the moon and that's all the production cool. notes I have for this. And she was, was she the victim who was spotted at the racetrack? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then she's got, the, she's the, oh yeah. She's the one on the bed with the cigarette. Yep. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you, sir. <clears throat> that was fantastic. Good stuff. Um, and, you know, a film like this, clearly there's a lot of uh, production information and more information probably out there that we're not even privy to. I think it's probably important to talk about, you know, the place in history for this film real quick. I mean, we've been spending the last, say, almost two years watching and talking about proto Jolly, which is short for prototype, which I recently found out. Um Cause I remember when Matt asked me if I made that word up <laughs> and I'm like, no, I didn't, but it, I don't know where it comes from. So yeah, proto is short for prototype. And, um, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with trying to place all of the, the specifics of 
how things worked out in historical in a historical sense like girl who knew too much and blood and black lace came out back to back year one year after the other and then we had you know a six year um time period where these directors were trying to figure out you know um how to take what bava did if they were even trying to take what bava did and create something successful and there are very few examples if you look through the films between 64 and 70 there are very few examples of blood you know like a prototype that uses the blood and black lace formula um the the closest that i remember is uh deadly inheritance black love killer you know point of view shots um you know you know uh all all of the earmarks that we know uh for you know that the jalo score and and all of the, all the tropes that we have come to recognize but um you know it's not until dario argento puts out this film that um people stand up and take notice and it's partly because obviously it was a big success from a financial standpoint and it was released in italy and abroad right all at the same time like it wasn't one of those things where it got released in italy and because it was so popular they decided to distribute it outside of italy i think it was pretty much distributed across the board um all at the same time if i'm if i got that right but um so I wanted to throw down a couple of uh, things before we start going through the scenes. The first one is we're going to spoil it right away in, in an attempt to do something a little bit different. Let's talk about you know what we know at the end. And I, I like analyzing these films. Unless if you guys want to object, that's totally fine. I, I will go in a different direction. But I really get a kick out of analyzing these films knowing what we know at the end and trying to figure out you know how much of you know how much of of the secret was being pushed towards us and given to us ahead of time or how much of it is just a complete surprise when we get to the end but the other thing i wanted to bring up and it's because i remember <laughs> listening to episode 1 yesterday and when matt said something like I think Argento is more style over substance, and I know that a lot of Argento fans will be mad at me, but if you agree with me, um, you should know that you have a safe place here at the Chalo Chow Chow podcast. And I'm telling you right now, if you're a horror fan or a Jalo fan and you do not like Argento, it is okay to say that out loud. No one's going to hurt you. The cops aren't going to come get you. The horror Nazis aren't going to rape you or anything like that. There's a place for you, and it's yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. Like, you know... Um, there are like the Argento. I guess you must have been on some other podcast where the Argento fanboys are just like <clears> over <throat> the top. Like he's the god of everything, and he's like, like uh, everyone, everyone I know who <laughs> is an Argento fan. It's like they're not just like, oh yeah, Argento's cool. It's like, like Argento is like the godfather of everything. Like how <laughs> dare you? So yeah. 
So what I wanted to lay down ahead of time about that is when it comes to the discussion of the film and talking about the merits of the film as well as the things that we don't like about the film, let's not let's not decide that it was the you know the 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 let's not let's not blame one particular person or 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 yeah, praise not, one particular let's not, person let's not blame argento for i think that we need to we we need to cuz cuz i think like you know on the one hand people who watch bird that are the argento fanboys they will basically think that argento did everything to make this movie brilliant and the people who like matt who don't like Argento or at least think that he's overrated will he's say, overrated. He's well, yeah. well, Matt's valid take, very valid take on this is that he had a lot of money coming from his father. He had an Academy award winning uh, cinematographer. He had a good script. He had a good um, composer. So let's blend the two together. And when we are talking about the film, I think that, uh, because I have some some specific questions as we go through as to and there's no right answer to these questions. These are all kind of rhetorical or open to discussion. But like I always like to to think about who decided to do it this way. And and Matt, because you are. Have been and still are in the business of creating films, I have questions about, you know, when they make choices about how to frame things, how to set up shots, how to move the camera, uh, how to put the actors in place, how to decide when there's a two camera shot versus a one camera shot, whether they decide to do handheld or to dolly, like who makes those decisions? Are those decisions made up on the, on the spot when they're filming? Are they decided ahead of time? Is it Argento who says, I want to do it this way? Is it the cinematographer? Um, you know, do you want me to answer this question right now? Yeah, yeah. If, well, I mean, when, in, in general, what's, what's when the expectation? I, when I do stuff, I have like a beat sheet beforehand of every shot I want to have done, how I want the shot to move and how I want it to look. <clears throat> and then when um, – I get on set, I talk to the actors and tell them where I want them to be and how I want them to be. But then I have another like super good friend of mine um, who is a director and he doesn't give a shit about any shot in the movie. Like he lets his um, cinematographer take care of how all the shots are going to look, how the lighting's going to look and all that shit. And all he cares about is getting a performance out of the actors. Okay. So it, it completely varies. Depends on the director. Yeah. Director has final say, I guess. <clears throat> director has final say as long as director is like on schedule and under budget. If he starts <laughs> to go over budget or things are taking too long, the producers will come in and either rein him in or fire him, like which, which might almost happened here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and another question I had, cause I was watching something else. I think I was watching an episode of Fargo. Uh, the new season, by the way, is really awesome. Um, 
when the credits roll on a show like that, there are so many producer and executive producer credits. And um, as opposed to putting them all on the screen at the same time, you know, they they flash up and we've got an executive. We've got another executive. Maybe there's two people at once that are shown and then we got a producer. And do they do that because depending on how much either money or time they've invested in the film, they want their own credit on the screen without anybody else. Is that how it works? Um, some of the title cards are going to be in the contract where like, like people want individual title cards. Okay. Um, but yeah, typically your executive producers are the ones that either pay for the movie or bring in the financing your producers are the ones who actually run the production. Your um, associate producers are usually people who are fucking the executive producers, <laughs> the producers and they just need to get a credit. I'm not even fucking joking. Or it could be something like, um, we need to shoot at this location, but we don't have any money. Can I give you an associate producer credit? And um, we shoot here and then your resume is being built. Um, shit like that happens all the time. And then like your line producer is the one who's actually doing all of the hard work that all the other producers take credit for. Okay. So in, in, in a situation going back to the director versus the cinematographer in a, in a case where let's say the director takes the, takes the approach that you take where you kind of storyboard out the shots and the camera movements and everything. Um, what is the job of the cinematographer? If you've done all of that prep work <clears throat> to um, make sure the vision of the director is something that will come up and like work properly, taking care of the lighting, how to like, um, like, especially in this movie, there is a lot of shadow. Yeah. Like, hard shadows from lights. So, um, like, let's say Argento planned every fucking shot out. And the cinematographer for this would be kind of coming in his pants over all the shadows he's getting to put in this fucking movie. <laughs> but... Um, so that would be his gig. But also, um, since this is film, you have your um, cinematographer, you have your um, camera operator, you have your um, first AC and second AC. Who? So all the cinematographers telling those dudes what to do. And like it's anything from pulling focus to um, changing lenses to clearing the gate to... Um, all sorts of little ridiculous camera shit that the cinematographer is above doing. Okay. And so basically I would say lighting and what lenses to use would be the cinematographers like art at this point. Okay. And is that a lot less important nowadays with digital and automatic everything? No, it's still like you still really need people to do all that shit. But a lot of people um, kind of skimp on that. And okay. You can tell. Because they can get away with it. 
well, not only they think they can get away with it. See, that's the whole thing. And like we've talked about this before since the 70s. Well, let me say since DV happened in like the late 80s, early 90s, probably 90s, um, anyone can make a movie. So like right. people actually having to learn how to do shit correctly and how to light things properly and aperture and all sorts of other fucking bullshit F stop crap. Right. Like, he knows how to do that shit anymore. So <laughs> a lot of stuff looks fucking flat and mm-hmm. there's a lot of boring looking shit that they can just like air quote fix and post, but yeah, they yeah. fix it and post. Hmm. But that's just me being a bitch right now. So no, sorry. good stuff, man. Good stuff. I mean, it, it, we've talked about this, you know, ad infinitum. But um, you know, the the technique of the filmmakers from this time period um, is kind of you know underappreciated uh, unless you understand. Cinematographers through the '80s like knew what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I'm sure motherfuckers still know what they're doing. It's just there's so many people who don't. Right. Right. (sighs) Okay. But anyway, that's really interesting stuff. And, you know, I'm sorry to geek out on that, but it's always these things always come up and I go, this is another question I need to ask Matt because I know he has a good answer. So, um, okay, everybody. So, again, just to spoil this ahead of time. Spoiler alert! We are about to ruin the movie! Spoiler alert! The thing that you need to understand or know about the film is that there are two people who are in partner committing crimes. And the primary person committing the crimes is um, uh, Monica Ranieri, who is the woman who is married to Alberto Ranieri and the two of them run a art gallery in Italy and um, they are the two people that will eventually be found out as the perpetrators of this crime and of this mystery that we're trying to solve that Sam Dalmas is trying to solve and I will go ahead in post-production and throw up some sort of siren that says spoiler alert before I started saying all this stuff just because I kind of came out of nowhere with it. But again, um, we're a hundred episodes in ladies and gentlemen. And if you don't know who the fucking killer is in bourbon crystal plumage, you probably shouldn't be listening. Okay. Anyway. So, uh, the film opens up. Um, we have no music in the very beginning. All we hear is the typewriter and it's an overhead shot. We see black gloves. We see, um, a black jacket and someone is typing on the typewriter and the paper is removed. And I immediately already have a question to bring up um, because there was something that Matt said in episode one, 10 years ago. I keep thinking about 10 years ago. How crazy is that? I'm sorry. It is um, nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, so the, the, the unseen figure who's dressed like a killer whose gender we really don't know yet, but we assume is a man because in 1970, you know, we should assume it was a man. He pulls the paper out of the typewriter and it says in all caps, mind you, Sandra Rovese, age 18, pick up between two streets and the names of the streets. I didn't write that down. 9 PM follow to gardens there. 
And my initial interpretation of this piece of writing is, first of all, where it says pick up between streets A and B or intersection, whatever. Pick up meaning spot, identify, you know, that's where you're going to find her and follow her. And then the word there to me means this is where you kill her. Follow to gardens and kill her, right? Now, when I watch this movie over and over and over and over again, my interpretation of this is the killer is making their own diary because they're psychotic, but at the same time, they love the idea that they're stalking and killing somebody, so they need to write it down and document it for the purposes of their own you know, pleasure. But knowing that we have a murderer and a murderer's accomplice, Matt brought up the point, or maybe it was Eric, back in the original podcast that maybe this was instructions for one person to the other person in this duo. So yeah. what do you guys think? I mean, if there's anything that would uh, like be a hint from the beginning of the movie that there's more than one killer, like I think that would probably be it, right? Yeah. But see, in my in my mind, uh Alberto never did any of the real murders. He only served as a person who was defending his wife and trying to keep her out of trouble. So do you think he was finding women that he thought she could get away with killing? And so he would write the note to her, like, this is where you need to go. Right. Good question. There are no right answers. What do you think, Al? But if it's your own wife, why the hell are you writing a note to her? Because you're creating physical evidence and She's your wife. Just tell her as you guys were doing the dishes together after dinner <laughs> or something. Right. And well, why and are you wearing? Uh, it, why are you wearing gloves and wearing? You're using a fucking typewriter. Exactly. Typewriter I think the type already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck typing anything with big ass gloves on. That's probably but, why there's spaces in between the the periods where there shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> I think the typewriter is kind of a uh, subliminal red herring to make you think that Sam Dalmas, who we know is a writer, might be the killer. Yeah, there you go. That's interesting. Yeah. And maybe they just shoehorned in, oh, well, okay, let's have the husband type a note to his wife and probably pull it out of the typewriter and turn around and hand it to her. <laughs> <laughs> But see, uh, just to- I saw it as a device where you could – I saw it as just a device to the audience where you could say, here, let's give the audience some details, but we don't have to reveal anyone's identity, and we don't even have to use somebody's voice to show what's going to happen or what the intent is or what the motive is. Like it's just written on a piece of paper and – we can read it, and now we know, you know, what's going on. And it's written in English, and I only bring that up because there it jumps back and forth throughout this film, whether things that we see printed are in English or in Italian. 
Yeah. And if this, as we find out, is probably a note from Alberto to Monica, they're both Italians. Why the hell is it in English? Right. Well, it's just and, one of those things where they, whenever they would do something like that, they would type it in whatever language the movie was going to be released in. Yeah, yeah like the opening probably, yeah. for Tenebre, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. on where you sit. But then later when they show us the newspaper headline, why not do that with the newspaper, too? Yeah. yeah. And that just our gentleman almost got fired. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say this right now, because if I say something that's completely <laughs> wrong, I need you guys to tell me. Okay. For those of you who know or don't know, <clears throat> like this movie has haunted me so much. And I've been like, I go back and forth where it's really good and then really cheesy, really good, really cheesy. And I don't ever can understand. I ended up writing a spoof, like Jalo novel. Yes. Called um, The Girl with the Crystal Pubis. <laughs> and like in watching this back, I keep thinking that things are going to happen that I wrote in the book. <laughs> and then that doesn't. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the guy with the spaghetti dick. And then I'm like, wait, do I see his dick in this? Like, I can't remember if I see a dick in this. So I'm like having like a lot of confusing, um, confusing <laughs> memories and thoughts okay so yeah i was gonna bring so up the girl I say with the crystal stupid pubis. what was that i said i was gonna bring up the girl with the crystal pubis i forgot <laughs> just tell me if i say something that's like wrong and then cut it out of the fucking thing all right yeah they don't have a there's no scene where they have sex with the cats they just eat them so yeah, it's okay yeah. uh right. <laughs> anyway um so Right away, the main theme begins, the la-la theme, and we see this fantastic opening shot of this woman in the red jacket with the thigh-high boots, and she's walking, and we get the freeze frame, um, and every time it freeze frames, we show like the borders of a camera, and we hear that click, shutter, advancing sound effect, and you know, of course, we know that uh, Tarantino did this in Death Proof, he just... Re- recreated it for the um for that scene in death proof after the the first part of it was over um and it's just great you know it's just you know we the the ultimate like peeping tom you know stalking sequence like you can't get any more stalking than this and after we do this a few times and we take a few pictures we go back to the interior of where the killer lives, we see, um, and I wrote in my notes, Seven Knives on Red Velvet, which should be the title of a film, to be honest with you. Yeah, I um, just oh, – right, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pussy on the chessboard. <laughs> the, the, the black glove hands are there again. They pick up one of the knives. The music starts again. Um, and the photos – from the previous scene are now, I guess, developed and printed. And the killer, you know, writes the number three um, in red marker and on the photo print and then uh, puts the knife in a sheath and buttons the jacket and puts the rest of the knives away. And then at that point, 
We finally see the last credit where it says written and directed by Dario Argento. The killer turns off the light and we hear with black on the screen, a woman screaming. And that is, I guess, to signify that, you know, the murder has taken place, but we don't really see the murder of victim number three. Uh, so from there, we move to the opening shot where we establish our main characters. Carlo is the first person we see. He goes up to the newsstand, grabs the paper. It says something about the third victim in the headline. And he grabs the paper and he says, ah, usual garbage. And then what's interesting is he opens the paper up to read a little bit more. And he starts talking to Sam, who's actually behind the paper. You don't see him. And then when he pulls the paper down, we see Sam Dalmas for the first time. And Okay, one one yeah, little detail I liked about this shot. When he goes up to pay for the newspaper at the newsstand, you can see a couple of the Mondadori Giallo books oh, yeah. at the top of the shot. And I wonder if that was a conscious decision on somebody's part. Uh, because they do sell those books still at certain newsstands but the it's fact so that it's right there in your face so i thought it was pretty cool like is, that there, is there still like a like a newsstand culture in italy oh yeah, yeah. Oh, i'm so jealous dude right oh yeah you're right i'm looking at it now and and it's interesting because matt and eric talk about that on the first episode of the podcast like um they wondered whether or not this was done intentionally or whether it's like <laughs> Matt was like, I wonder if just every newsstand has like sleazy murder books, you know, where you can just buy sleazy murder books whenever you want. But, uh, well, yes, they do. They do. To answer <laughs> that question. There's a, um, there's a magazine that comes out every week. It's kind of like the, the people of prurient Italian interest called Cronica Nera, which is like the black chronicles. And it's all about like, uh, true crime and especially uh, true crime that's still being investigated or has recently happened. Oh, okay. So, so it's just, yeah, uh, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, so Carlo and Sam start to walk and talk and we find out a bunch of stuff about our protagonist right away. He's a writer. He's from America. He has a girlfriend named Julia um he's had writer's block ever since he came to italy two years ago and um he's going back to america the day after tomorrow and taking julia with him and he's using the commission that he gets for writing this book about the preservation of rare birds to fund his uh travels back to new york and um so we know right off the bat that <clears throat> he's a writer and he's an American. And this obviously is a callback to uh, the girl who knew too much, uh, who she wasn't a writer. She was interested in detective novels and whatnot, but she was an American in Italy. And um, as they walk and talk, they go into the Wilkinson something or other. And, you know, again, it's so funny how, you watch these films so many times and there's certain things that you just never notice or never really pay attention to. Um, and this time I paid a lot of close attention to all of the stuff in this bird preservation place 
museum. Like there are so many stuffed birds of all different sizes. And then of course there's this cut to the cat sitting there and you know, they have these giant pelicans and swans and like, where is this? Is this really a place? I mean, well, like I'm just confused now because like, if he's like smart enough to like write a book on rare birds and shit, how did he (laughs) not hear the fucking bird in the fucking thing? Right. Exactly. why did like his douchey friend have to figure that out for him? Well, I and mean, why the, is anyone giving him an advance when he hasn't when he's had writer's block for two years? God, the last well, thing you want to do is give some motherfucker money. Well, I don't think they're giving him an advance because it looks to me like they were trying to hand him a copy of the text as he leaves, and he's like, "No, I don't want it. I got the money. I don't give a shit about what I wrote." Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. I think for his fiction creativity he had hit writer's block yeah and his buddy here had hooked him up with a non-fiction writing job about yeah. rare birds okay and th- does that mean he wrote the whole book or just like a chapter of it i don't know that's like a good question they were trying to hand it off to him but well, like you yeah. said as it comes up later where the whole uh the sound of that particular bird is a key plot point either uh sam or his buddy here i I forget what his name is should have recognized that as soon as they heard it yeah if one of them wrote a damn book about rare birds and the other one works at this institute of stuffed birds birds, you know <laughs> and I, I'm thinking it must be a real place because hell, they would have had to clear out every prop department in Europe to put real. this place together. So yeah. Well, I mean, the only thing that I mean, and obviously I'm making up a a, a backstory here, but I'm thinking like somebody handed Sam Dalmas, you know, a bunch of notes, you know, that were just kind of curated by various you know, scientific bird people or ornithologists, if we want to say that word. And then he turned it into some sort of prose that was readable um, and then sent it back to the group and they turned it into a book. Maybe he doesn't, you know, he's the kind of, he's, he has a talent for writing, but he doesn't really know the, the subject matter. He's not a subject matter expert. He's just a writer. Um, You know, like kind of like if you're in a cover band or you're in a wedding band and you really don't know that much about cool in the gang, but you know how to play celebration. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. (laughs) It's just the first thing I thought of. Like, yeah, no, like he's off the hook. Dave Mustaine is off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) So he grabs the the check and he's like, you know, I don't even care about the text. I, I have the check and that's all I really want. And he leaves, and then we get to the art gallery scene, which is clearly the most important scene in the movie, for better or for worse. And I tried to break this down um, without getting too granular, but I did break it down pretty well. Um, because what what I'm interested in is how many times the film shows us what Sam sees, because this is important. But also, Sam, go the, ahead. 
sell it in a way that is not trustworthy. Right. My well, sink back. Yeah, you you've got up. you've got like he's so he's walking down the street. Um, he, he he, the first scene is Sam is is walking down a dark street. Uh, it's nighttime. He's going from right to left on the in the frame. He turns the corner, and now um, he it's the first he, he's whistling. It's the first glimpse of that he gets of the gallery window. We see it too, and there's some trees that are hanging that obscures the vision. Um, they cut to Sam. That's all of a sudden looking a little closer. Um, then we have a second view of the window we see a white figure on the left a black figure in the middle and then there's a statue on the right and they're all on top of the stairs and it looks like there's a struggle ensuing then we cut back to sam who's looking even closer and then we cut back to the window this time sam is in the right side of the frame the figures are still struggling sam decides that he's going to start walking across the street we cut back to the window again the figures are still struggling, but it's a little bit more violent. Um, and then we get the close-up of what's going on inside the gallery. And we see uh, Monica. We see the blade. She's breathing heavy. Um, and then all of a sudden, they switch the focus from the close-up to the far away, showing Sam kind of standing in the middle of the road watching what's going on. Um, they cut back to Sam again. And then all of a sudden they cut to an overhead shot of a car who comes out of the left side of the frame who almost runs Sam's over or basically runs Sam over without hitting him. Um, obviously distracting him from what he's looking at. Um, from there they cut to the to a fifth shot uh, at this point. This is the fifth time that we've seen the window. Um, if we're if we're replicating what Sam is seeing, this is the fifth time we're looking. Um, the woman appears to be stabbed and the dark figure walks halfway down the steps and then jumps to the left and heads for the door. Then we cut back to Sam um, moving towards a window again, the window, the the uh, the gallery doors. We go to a sixth shot of what he's looking at. The dark figure goes out through the door. The woman starts walking down the steps and now Sam appears in the same frame and runs through the door of the gallery that's still open. Um, let's see. That's the sixth shot of us looking at what's going on. At this point, the person who is the, the shrouded figure in black in the raincoat has left the scene. Um, Sam is up against the second glass, second set of glass doors. He's got his hands on the glass. He's shuffling, you know, to the left of, of the frame, trying to find an opening. Um, and then there's these quick cuts between Sam and the woman. And then all of a sudden we cut to this black glove hand who pushes the button. The door closes. And now we see that Sam is trapped between the two glasses. The music is building. It's tense. Uh, the woman is in more and more distress. She's bleeding. She's obviously been stabbed in the stomach. Sam is helpless. There's nothing he can do. He turns around and there's some guy there who's like, I can't hear what you're saying. And he's like, call the police, call the police. Um, and <laughs> which is really funny. Um, but Sam really looks like a rat, like trapped, you know, between these two glasses. 
the police finally show up. And what I thought was really cool was um, Morosini. It's the first time we see Morosini. He gets out of the cop car and he's looking around and then he looks at Sam and he starts saying things. But we don't know what he says because we're still in between the two pieces of glass and hearing what Sam is hearing. And um, that's the end of that sequence. The next cut is when the investigation starts. So um, that's a big rundown. Yeah. um, So there's a lot going on there. Did that ever show that she was holding the knife in any of those shots? No. See, that's my issue with the whole fucking movie. Well, the issue that I remember you bringing up in the original podcast is why is this happening anyway? <laughs> totally. Why is this scene happening? Why are they fighting? Yeah, that's a question I had also. And as far as the point of do we ever actually see her holding the knife, at least in Deep Red, when the guy sees the woman's face in the mirror, but uh, at first he, you know, he and we, unless you're on Blu-ray or something, think it's just a painting. Right. And then you go back and look and it actually was there. He hadn't figured that part out at this point because the second time I watched this recently, I was looking very carefully to see if she was holding the knife and he doesn't show us that at all. So it's kind of a cheat. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the only part that you see is that one close up where her face is in the frame and the knife is in the frame. And you could deduce that she's holding the knife at that point, but you don't but see anybody's hand towards her, though. It's like pointing towards her, but then she she tilts it down a little bit and out of the frame as if they're having a struggle. Right. Yeah. Well, the other question is, is if these if these two are uh, collaborators in this string of serial killing going around town, you know, uh, one choosing the victims and typing out notes to send the killer to kill them. Why are they fighting each other? The only in the thing middle of this gallery is- that's lit up like a fucking aquarium <laughs> on the side <laughs> of the road. Right. And, the only thing I could think is that he didn't want her to do it, and he was – they got into an argument. And if she's as crazy as, like, she is since she's fucking killing motherfuckers, um, it might have got a little heated. Because I'm sure if he wanted to kill her, he could have just stabbed her in the fucking throat or something. Right, so yeah. The stabbing might not but, – but I don't understand why he was in his getup. Right. In the aquarium, as you say. But just like the whole thing, like where if we're trying to figure out like what he's missing from his memory, if he ever remembers that she was holding the knife, then that should allude that we should also see that she's holding the knife from the beginning. It's not like he saw two different things and then suddenly was like, oh, shit, yeah, wait, that first thing didn't happen. It was the second thing that happened. Yeah, but you have to, you have to, um, you have to accept the idea that what are, what, what the film is showing us 
is an exact replica of what Sam is seeing, and it might not necessarily be that. Because he wouldn't be able to remember it if he never saw it. Right, but he saw it some sort of in a sub sort of subconscious way, maybe. You know, like it it between between yeah. the between the the curtain that was coming down from the top and the plants or the or the trees that are I mean, obscuring that, the vision that, and the fact that he got knocked it, off of his uh, uh with a car. Yeah, you know. I mean the the thing could be too like he saw a woman in white being attacked by someone in black. And so he just assumes that the woman in white is the victim. Right. Like without ever thinking, you know, so. Well, and uh, the other question, obviously, that like you said before, if she's really the one going out and killing these women, why is he wearing the getup? Exactly. Yeah. Because I think there's one other scene where, like, I think when they're the killers trying to get Susie Kendall. I think that's supposed to be the dude. Right. Yeah. But so like, maybe he does go out and do shit. I don't fucking know, but well, I just, I, I did have a thought here. Do you think him falling or jumping off the staircase is foreshadowing to his demise? Ooh, that's good. Mm. Cause that would be like really well thought out if that was the case. But like, I don't know because he doesn't jump, he falls. Yeah, yeah. But well, I definitely saw a, a a connection between Sam being trapped between the two doors and getting trapped at the end underneath the the big sculpture. Yeah. Oh, um, that was the question I had. Where do I get carpet like that? <laughs> like that flooring in that gallery is fucking ridiculous and can it's you a, imagine how hard it is to keep clean it's a fiber, yeah, it looks like somebody fiber just, found only in england yeah it looks like pressed hay that somebody spray painted yeah sold in little squares it's like asbestos like <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah i've, I've been good luck cleaning that, that floor yeah, can't even sweep that shit, dude. Okay, well, the idea of a couple who are uh, collaborating in these murders, that kind of harkens back to Blood and Black Lace also, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that would be another element. Um, One thing I don't get is this woman is attacked, almost killed. The police show up. From what I understand, anytime a woman is a victim of violent crime, automatically the number one suspect is their partner, which would be her husband. Yeah. And these cops can't figure out that her husband smokes fancy cigars and is left-handed and would know that there's a door in the gallery right there where we saw the killer run out. Because I didn't know there was a door until he opened it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But – you know, that would make this movie about an hour and 20 minutes shorter. But. <laughs> well, you know, of course, we have to come with the realistic interpretation, which is that. And and I've 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 come to these conclusions because of all the talks that Matt and I have had over the, the last 10 years, which is that 
you know, let's just pretend for a second that you're Argento or you're part of the production crew. And maybe the most important part of this movie starts with you constructing the scene and then building off of it. And the idea is that the audience is going to see this scene in the beginning and really isn't going to take it apart after the movie's over. It's basically going to be, you know, because they can't go back. That's the whole thing. So I get it. Yeah. It's a trick. It's a dirty fucking trick. Argento, you mother. Yeah, it is. (laughs) And, And, you know, if you read some of what Ernesto Gastaldi has has said and has written about Giallo films, and he's one of the main screenwriters and most of the Jolly that we like, he talks about how you really shouldn't be able to cheat your way to the end of a Giallo film. You should be able to have a, a situation which is hard to explain, but once it gets to the end, it's it makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, Gastaldi obviously had nothing to do with this film, but um, he talks about how Argento cheats all the time. So, yeah, I like this guy. Let's talk to him more, dude. (laughs) He's still around. Um, And, you know, a plug for Ernesto Gastaldi, who um, has a Facebook page, unless it's somebody who's pretending to be him. But I'm friends with him. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he um he has one in, one movie and one movie only called Libido, which is a really great movie and I think everybody should watch it. Mm-hmm. So, um, from 1965. Um, anyway, so okay, we'll we'll I'm sure we'll harken back to this this scene because it's very iconic. Um, but we move on. The investigation starts. The cops come in. The woman is taken away. Um, Sam walks around with the inspector. Uh, and they start talking, and then all of a sudden Alberto shows up. He's like, I'm the husband. She's my wife. And I have in my notes, did Argento create a intentionally false red herring here? Um, like, Alberto shows up, and when they ask him where he was and why is he here, he answers in a way that makes it look like he's super suspicious. He's like, uh, I was, she was going over the books. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. And you're like, okay, he's acting really suspicious. So are we, is Argento saying, or the, the filmmakers, are they saying like, it can't be that easy that it's the husband because that's what you think. And really the answer is it is the husband. He's the one who did this. And he walks in wearing a black raincoat. Yeah. yeah, it's not like he changed. Like he just ran out much. the back door, took off his gloves and hat, and <laughs> came right around the corner. Did, oh no, what happened? Didn't they find a glove at the scene? Yeah, they find a glove. Yeah. So that okay. So he is he wearing gloves when he comes up? No. Yeah. So that would probably look very suspicious too. I don't know if this is how um, your uh, Italian. Um, crime TV shows are but in America like if you're watching anything from fucking Matlock to Bones the first person who <laughs> comes in to talk to the cops is always the one who did it <laughs> like it's just it's the formula so the fact that 
they did this exactly like that, it is like he is the guy who did it, but he's not the killer. <laughs> so it's like they did exactly what you expect them to do, but it is a red herring of sorts. So it's like it, it, it's it's a red herring, but it's an anti red herring at the same time. Yeah. It's yeah, an he orange shows up. Herring. It's an orange herring. Say that, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he shows up and he's got like you know, he's definitely dressed in black, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, okay. Uh, so after he they they take uh, Monica away, he goes with her. They start talking again. Um, um. Sam and Morosini start talking a bit again. The police start to gather clues. Um, and the most important thing is um, Morosini finds a black glove. I, I do really like that. Do, do you guys remember Mad Balls from the 80s? Fuck yeah, dude. That, Oculus Orb. Yeah, so that thing behind, <laughs> you know, where 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 Monica has collapsed, where the, you know, and <laughs> I just, I laugh at the fact that the, the medical people pick her up in some kind of like some sort of way where she absolutely would, would have more injuries because of the way they carried her. Um, than than she would have, if they did it the right way, but then they put her back down and then there's this gigantic ball with the eyes like crossed out and this big open mouth. I really love that thing. I would, I wouldn't mind having that, but it reminded me of, um, the mad balls, which was were like these, these different, these balls from, okay. So for, for my jet, for my millennials and my gen Z's who may be listening, yeah. uh, back in the eighties, they had a thing called mad balls and there, there was a, there was a hard, hardcore punk band called mad ball, which is unrelated. Um, but uh, Mad Balls were balls, like baseballs, but they were um, squishy, yeah. Yeah. right? Weren't they squishy? And they had different yeah. um, faces on them, and you could throw them. It was just like a toy. But yeah, anyway, the, the eyeball, the Oculus Orb one was a little harder for some reason, because I think that was like the first series. The first series, they <laughs> were harder, and so the second series, they made them really soft. But I had Fist Face, Oculus Orb, and the kind of like pirate football helmet. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. I can't remember what his name was. I had but, one that was blue, and oh, he had one eye out, and he had like a sti- like a Frankenstein yeah. stitch on his cheek oh. or something. And could you see a little bit of his brain? <laughs> I think I had that one too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With the brain sticking awesome. out. We should put an ad in the – because you could get like the – like Google it, the Mad Balls ad that has yeah. all the balls on it. Put that up in the – um group i'll put it on the group yeah yeah but I, I in general i like the art that's in this gallery like i would go to this gallery it's, it's really weird stuff it's it's morbid and surreal at the same time it's kind of weird um all right so they find like the, glove. the go ahead i'm sorry there's Al. there's the one sculpture that they kind of show prominently that's like a, an eagle's talon yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So I wonder if that was supposed to tie in with the whole bird thing is like a running theme. Could be. Or... Anyway. God, this well, is we... so hot. What's that? 
This I'm watching the movie again. Like I already played it through once while we've been sitting here, and I'm watching it again. But the the chick who's not dead yet because we haven't got to that part yet. She's just attractive as fuck. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So so we cut to the police inspector's office, and Matt, I don't know if you were part of our discussion when I added a new one point criteria to the Jalo score, which is oh the city God. the city map. Oh, that's so fucking awesome. <laughs> There's so many Jolly good, yeah. The police have some sort of map of the city. Oh, that and... means I all got an extra point. I'm stoked. <laughs> <laughs> well, not to, uh not to jump ahead, but I, I rescored Bird with the Crystal Plumage and I forgot that I gave it credit for the demise of the killer. The killer actually, if you're considering Monica to be the killer, she gets carted off. She doesn't actually die at all. So she got it, judo chopped. She got judo chopped, but then brought to some psychiatric institution at the end. She yeah, doesn't but, die. So and that takes like a bunch of points off the score. And Bird went down from a 90 something to like an 86. Oh so, my God. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So are we saying that the husband killed no one? No, we're not saying that. But I have footnotes throughout these, uh, these, um, the, the scene by scene where I say, is, was this, was this Alberto? Did Alberto do this? Did Alberto do that? Um, when we, and when we get there, we can ask the question, but I, my take on this, and again, there is no right answer. My take on this is that Monica killed the first three girls before the film starts and also kills the fourth and fifth. And everything else that happens with um, Sam being uh pursued and attempted and the attempt on Julia is all Alberto. But that's that's what I that's what I got out of it. But I mean So because he doesn't actually kill anyone on camera, he's not a killer that meets his demise. Right. I considered um I considered uh Monica to be the main killer and him to be the accomplice in the Jalo score. All right. <laughs> I'm just giving you shit, dude. Al is suspiciously quiet. He's like, I don't well, know. I don't know because it didn't even occur to me to try to figure out who killed who once I figured out that they were together. I kind of got the impression that she was the main killer, but do we know for sure that he didn't kill anybody? No, we don't. Hmm. We don't know at all. And, and you know, again, the idea that he's wearing the getup in that main scene um, suggests that maybe he's involved more than just as an accomplice. Well, he gives a confession at the end as he's dying. And I think we're supposed to. Well, I think the conventional thinking would be that he's doing that. Because uh, the psychiatrist guy at the end 
kind of does the psycho explanation wrap up. And that makes it look like he didn't kill anybody. It was all a lie to take right. the blame off of his wife, who was actually responsible. But maybe it was only half a lie. You know, maybe his wife had killed some and he was and he had killed some, but he's trying to take all the blame, too. Well, I so. mean, they explain at the end that he's like psychotic by association. Like maybe he wasn't psychotic to begin with because but because he spent so much time with Monica and kind of, you know, uh, got involved in what she was involved in, that he developed the psychosis. That's what. That's what they say at the end, you know. It's like, what's the name of that couple that killed all those kids in the UK? That big famous fucking thing, the um, Smith songs about it. Um, uh, Suffer Little Children or whatever. The It's the Sonic Youth album cover that Raymond Pettibone did. It's of them two in the back of the police car. The boyfriend and girlfriend couple like one of them was like into wanting to kill fucking kids and fuck them or something like that huh. and their one just started going along with it because they loved their partner so much oh the moore's murders yeah 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 yeah. i'm, I'm like, googling as you talk this is the same thing like if this is like he just went along with it because he loved his crazy ass batshit fucking wife yeah. Were they the ones that had bodies buried in their basement? Or was that a different one? I used to listen to My Favorite Murder all the time, so all those stories get kind of mixed up in my head. Okay, so knowing a bunch of those stories, is that usually how it works? Like some, like there's someone in a relationship who's like wanting to murder people and shit, and the other person just starts murdering as well or do they just like help them out typically it it sounds like it's kind of like the same kind of thing where you know if you're an abusive in in a abusive relationship you kind of perpetuate it even though you should get out of it but instead of the abuse being targeted on the other person the abuse is targeted outward and the other person in the relationship is just helping to is like a facilitator, you know, protector kind of thing. And just on a side note, it's totally obvious that he's the one jumping off the staircase, right? Like how is no one like, how does he, how does Sam not look at that guy and go, yeah, you're exactly that dude. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, uh, not to jump ahead, but, you know, the scene where where Sam goes to to talk to him and, you know, they already know that he's left handed and they he throws the cigarettes at him and he catches it in his left hand. I mean. I, I think the thing about this movie is that Sam probably should have. Gone pers- back to America. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no shit. He should have pursued his initial instincts. All right, well, we'll get there in a minute. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, so, so back at the uh, at the inspector's office. Um, uh, 
Morrissey basically, you know, they're going over the information over and over and over again. And Sam's like, look, I've told you everything I know, whatever. I can't tell you anything more. Um, Morrissey decides to confiscate Sam's passport and threatens to implicate him if he doesn't cooperate as a witness. And so Sam's like, you can't do this to me. This is blackmail. I want to call my consulate. And Morrissey like, fine, go ahead and call whoever you want. Call the president if you want to. And he gives him the phone and Sam calls TWA, which is a now defunct airline, um, and cancels his flight. And um, so basically he's, you know, um, being, you know, sub- submissive, submissing. What's the word I'm looking for? He's he's uh, admitting he's defeat. Resigned. He's resigned to go along with this because he's been yeah. put in a, between a rock and a hard place. So um, the next scene is. Um, Sam walking home and this is another great scene because of the way that it was filmed. Um, it's just, it's foggy and misty and it's in the morning. And one of the things I wanted to bring up real quick is that before I was involved in this podcast, I never knew what a day for night scene was. And, um, now that I watch, when I watch these films, I, I notice them all over the place, but Argento seems to be able to, or whoever, you know, whoever's, whoever's in charge, they seem to be able to, to create these scenes where, you know, if it's nighttime, it's nighttime. And if it's, um, morning, it's morning. And, um, there aren't any day for night scenes in this movie that I noticed, and uh, again, I think that has to do with the fact that they had enough of a production budget to be able to light things properly. Is that right? Um, okay, so to do day for night, you mean? Yeah, like the idea that you you know you want to film a scene at night, but you don't have the budget to light it properly, so you have to film it at a time when it's kind of dark, but it's not completely I, dark. I don't right? know if that's typically because you don't have the budget to light it properly. I think it's more of a time and scheduling issue. Oh, okay. I never thought of that. So they're just like, yeah, we've got to see, film the scene at night, but you know, we're on a schedule and we, we need to film it now. Yeah, and there's been times when I was on shoots where um, there were certain places we really wanted at night, and they wouldn't let us shoot there at night. We can only shoot there between a certain hour, like between this hour and that hour. Okay. I I mean, when you look at this movie, like right now I'm watching the chase scene, and the lighting in this movie is ridiculous. So I don't think they ever like ran into an issue where like, they're like, Oh, we, we can't afford the lights for this. Um, yeah. Okay. There's lights all over the fucking place. When you say the chase scene, you're talking about the, um, the assassin in the yellow jacket. Yeah. Which we still need to get jackets made like that. (laughs) (laughs) We're all ex boxers. Okay. So, um, so Sam's walking back now. He's, you know, he's been a, at this murder scene, he's been to the police station. He's tired. It's morning. He, he he wants to go home. He's walking home. Um, we see that there's somebody following him. He turns the corner, um, and there's 
all of a sudden there's an old woman that's kind of like walking in the other direction and she screams. Dude, and, fucking ridiculous, dude. And Sam turns and at the last second just avoids getting decapitated with this cleaver, which instead punctures this water pipe. And um, as a result, uh, the killer runs off or whoever was this. No, we, we assume at this point that there's only one person. The killer runs off and jumps um, into a car that's already on jumps into this mercedes yeah, yeah. and I, I noticed that the mercedes has um these tail fins and but the license plate you really couldn't see what's going on now this is this is the husband right i would think but then the wife would be driving yeah okay all right, so uh, next scene we go to the flat where Sam and Julia have been hanging out for the last month or so. Um, and she says a couple of weird things like, oh, that's the most enthusiastic greeting I've ever got. And then she says, hey, it's been a month now. And I don't really understand what either of those things mean. Um, like it means His writer's block has made him not be able to give her the D. And yeah, okay. Oh. That's disgusting and sad. Like, I don't know how you're not fucking banging that thing every five fucking seconds. Now she taps on the bed a little bit. Yeah, dude. She's like, come on, like, let's move it. Throwing cobwebs up in this thing. No, but like both Monica and um, what's Susie Kendall's name in this? Julia. Julia. Like, when I first saw this, I did not find them very attractive at all. And um, I have completely changed my tune on that. <laughs> like, they are both very tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying. Well, that's what happens after 10 years goes by, I guess. I know. Like, you just start digging bony-ass <laughs> chicks, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> So t- so Sam lays down on the bed and he goes through this like list of things that just happened to him and it sounds ridiculous and she's like yeah okay sure whatever and he's like you know it's really it's true and then they start to have sexy time and while they're having sexy time um Sam is replaying some of the scenes that happened in the gallery um and when sexy time is over we are shown this metronome yeah which is clicking back and forth and in episode one of the podcast matt decided that this was uh, <laughs> something that julia insisted on setting up for their sexy time so that he wouldn't go too fast or too slow yeah because um, chicks give- need to have like a certain <laughs> rhythm in order to come <laughs> It's it's legit, dude. Like I I like with with the more research I've done since then, I stand by that. Like that is a solid fucking thing. I just can't kind of had a metronome fucking going for him to fucking. That's just nuts. This is the kind of research that I want to volunteer for. All right, dude. But I'm telling you, you're not going to come the same way as a girl. But I'll go easy on you. Ah, oh, Jesus. Okay. So, um, so Sam continues to have like 
flashbacks, freeze frames of what happened. He's obviously playing the scene back in his mind. The next scene, we go to the police lineup. And uh, Morosini says, OK, bring in the per- the perverts. This scene really doesn't go anywhere. But I thought it was interesting that the person who is described as the transvestite goes by the alias of Ursula Andres, who is an actress, right? Like she's a big time female. um, It was she a Bond girl? I I don't remember. She was the very first Bond girl. Okay. In Dr. No. Okay. (laughs) So he's like, hey, listen, you know, the transvestites, uh, and the and the perverts don't belong together, and and so they kick her out. And uh, um, but but I think there's a subtle moment where they look at Sam and he kind of shakes his head like none of these people look familiar. So I think they move on from there, and then they go to this kind of CSI forensic scene where we find out that the blood that's on the glove is Monica's, and that the killer smokes Havana cigars, and that the fiber that was found in the gallery comes from England. And then the funniest part is they deduced that from the wear on the glove that the killer is left-handed, but they only found one glove. So (laughs) how do they know that he's left-handed? You would only know that if you had both gloves, right? Well, I mean, I I would think so, yeah. If the wear – was it the left glove they found? I don't know. I don't know. That's a staircase. But anyway, the next thing they do is they bring us to this little computer printout. They have this dot matrix printer. And this is the first time I ever noticed this in this movie. Before they show the list of the possible suspects and the, the demographics of who they think the killer is based on his height and weight and so on, they have this image that the dot matrix printer has created of the guy with the fedora and the jacket and the knife. And it shows up like it's certainly not indicative of anything that you could identify a person by. It's just a picture of. This is who we're looking for. This is who we're looking for. This guy. Someone found a glove. This is who we're looking for. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Um, okay, so here where it says that the suspect's height is between 5'9 and 5'11, later we find out that Alberto, well, he at least says he's, what, six foot? Six foot one. Okay, and by the way, an Italian would never say I'm six foot one because we have the fucking metric system. <laughs> so... He would have said I'm 185 and a half centimeters. But so does that mean that Alberto was lying when he said he's six one? Or does that mean that the computer is wrong? Yeah, I think it's just that the computer or yeah, whoever a lot of faith in this fucking crime lab they got there. And how did they figure out his hair is dark brown? And how did they figure out his height from the glove? Or his age. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think this is just there so it gets the pseudoscience point on Jalo's score. Correct. They they did it for that purpose. They though. did. They yeah. didn't even know it, but they did it. 
I mean, honestly, they didn't they grill um, Sam for like three or four hours. Like, tell me everything you saw. Now tell me again. Now tell me again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they uh, need the computer to tell it back to them. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically. Along they, with a dot matrix cartoon. Yeah. Oh, man. If I had a dot matrix cartoon. <laughs> did you ever see there was a, they, somebody did the entire Star Wars episode four in, it wasn't dot matrix. What was the thing that they used to do in DOS? It was like an it was animation, but it was all just text animation. I forget what they called it. Oh well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so after the CSI scene, they go back to uh, Morosini's office, and this is a really important thing that I th- at least I think it's a really important thing that happens. Um, Morosini mentions that Monica is back home, and he says he gives him the address of where she lives and then sam gets up and he goes can i leave now and he says yeah and then he comes back in and he says what floor and morrisini says third and what what was interesting to me about this is that you know the amateur detective is a big deal in giallo films and the other thing that's a big deal in giallo films is that the police usually contribute to screwing up the investigation or being antagonistic to a certain extent. Like mm-hmm. um, they're, they're working against the person who's doing the sleuthing or yeah. they're trying to dissuade him from his investigation. But in this movie, Morosini basically pushes him to say, Hey, um, you should, you know, you should go and pay her a visit. I don't know why they don't go and pay her a visit. Um, but I guess, you know, Morrisini wants to kind of recruit Sam as kind of an unofficial detective in the investigation. Which and, is laughable because he's a horrible fucking detective. Right. Well, he's that's, awful. that's like, true, too. Everything that he finds out, he finds out because somebody else found it out for him. <laughs> And right. he just, he's like, oh, okay. He's he's awful. And then at the very end, he's like, oh, wait, no, now I remember. But <laughs> I, I said this 10 years ago. Jesus fucking Christ, dude. <sighs> okay. But I, I, again, I did find that really interesting because most of the time, um, the police are really inadequate and um, they're not very competent. And in this case, they're kind of the police and Sam kind of work together in this, you know, yeah. they've got this synergy going on. So Sam goes to visit Alberto. And what I find interesting is that he says that they live on the third floor. And if you watch the pan from the b- bottom to the top and you count the windows, they live on the fourth floor. They don't live on the third floor. Um, okay. Cultural note. Okay. As far as that goes in Europe, the ground floor is not considered a floor is considered the ground. So, okay. The next floor, well, the next level above the ground floor, that's where there's actually a floor because their floor is your ceiling. If you're on the ground floor, your floor is the ground. 
So what Americans would call the second floor, Europeans call the first floor. Oh, boom. There we go. Now we, we see we have an answer for that one. I love it. Yeah. Well, and, and sure. in in episode one of the podcast, um, Matt brings up the idea that the the ascension from the ground floor up to the third floor is a foreshadowing of the fact that eventually Alberto will fall out of this window and I came up with that. That's yeah, cool. and and you even mentioned that there's blood ivy surrounding the window above the window, which is another reference to the fact that death may be occurring out of this window. Honestly, I think I'm giving Argento way too much credit. <laughs> you probably <laughs> <I> definitely are. <laughs> All right, so so Sam is here and he's asking Alberto for information. Alberto's like, look, my wife is. Uh, in bed, um, she suffered a trauma. I'm not going to let you talk to her. She's told the police everything she knows. And Sam's like, okay, I just wanted to see if, you know, what she remembers, I remember. And the important part here is that we need to remember or we need to we need to notice on second viewing, because you would never notice this on first viewing, that there's a phone um, to the right. No, let me see. To the left of Sam, to the right of us viewing it, there's a telephone on a table, which is right by a window. Because um, he brings that up later. But ultimately, um, we get nothing out of this scene other than the fact that Sam throws the cigarettes to Alberto, who catches them with his left hand. And Sam makes a face that's kind of subtle, but, you know, uh, oh, and the other thing that's interesting is like, um, can I ask you an unrelated question? How tall are you? Like, why would you ask that? <laughs> if you weren't suspicious, you know, what are you accusing me of? You know. No, I mean, I will say the the cigarette thing is a pretty nice move, Sam. So I'll give you credit on that. But yeah, I mean, he he should know how tall the dude is if he knows how tall he is and he's standing next to the dude. Like, make a fucking guess. Right. Yeah. And the cigarette thing is something that wasn't initiated by him. It was Alberto saying, oh, can you hand me those cigarettes? Oh, so yeah, it's yeah. not like he went in there and says, uh, I'm going to throw something at him and see how he catches it. And it wasn't planned. It was just an accident. Okay, so I take it back. Sam's still a douchebag. <laughs> Well, I mean, he, you know, he didn't pick it up and then take a couple steps forward and hand it to him. Yeah. So he gets enough credit, I guess, for just tossing it the way that he did and making note of which hand he caught it with. I don't know. Clever I'm, enough. I'm watching him hold a syringe up to the light right now, so he's losing <laughs> points. But here's, the, but I mean, okay, uh, I don't want to go down these roads too often, but if <laughs> Sam. If Sam is suspicious of Alberto from the start and goes to talk to him and knows that he's left-handed, what is the deal with all of this other shit that he, you know, this other wild goose chase that he goes on with the pimp and the painting? And, you know, it's not even necessary. You you yeah. suspect that it's him. So why not go down the path of trying to find out more about Alberto and 
clearly that would lead you to more information about um, Monica and you'd get to the conclusion. But anyway. Or at least say to Modicini, hey, guess who's left handed? Yeah. Since you're. Exactly. Hey, guess who looks exactly like a dot matrix printout? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, But moving on, because we know that doesn't happen. um, The next scene is this is the scene that was filmed at the racetrack. And um, these are what they refer to in America as the trotters. Is that right? Matt, I know you know about horse racing, right? Was it the harness races? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trotters, depending on the race, if it's like a, I can't remember what the other one's called, but the trot is a slower, longer race, I think, than the actual just harness races. Right, because the uh, the jockey is in some sort of a um, harness in the in the back, right? Like like some sort of a. The, it's, like, it's almost like a stagecoach. They're under the horse, so the horse could shit in their mouth when they're running. <laughs> so this is a very quick scene. We see um, some, you know, young woman who is at the racetrack, but she's also being stalked, and we know she's being stalked because there's a lot of freeze frames of her with the camera borders, and we also see the. I think we see the. Um, the killer with the binoculars holding the black glove. And again, the question that keeps coming up is who is this? Um, is it Alberto? Is it um, Monica? And we really don't know. And there's no right answer. So, um, but just to show you that the killer is getting ready for victim number four. And then quickly we go back to Sam and Julia in the apartment and they're going through all the newspaper clippings and doing this amateur detective thing to the next level, going through each one of the murder victims. The first victim is the sales girl who uh, worked in an antique shop and was found dead in the park. The second victim is a hooker who was found under a bridge. Her pimp's name is Garulo, um, but he has an alibi because he was in prison. And the third one is the student who was killed on the way home from the movies. And again, um, this third victim, as we know, is the woman that we see in the opening credits. Uh, So uh, Julia doesn't really seem to be interested in following up all of these leads, but Sam certainly does. And I guess he's motivated by the fact that he still doesn't have his passport, so um, he might as well do something but i think that um one of the by the way he has the most amazing hair can i say um for a second like i wish i had half of the follicles this motherfucker has um it's it's his hair is brilliant i'm sorry anyway and 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 uh of course uh matt has um gushed over his leather jacket that he keeps wearing too yeah it's a really interesting coat with the with the black turtleneck underneath but that's an earlier scene i think yeah so sam decides hey um 
all right, I might as well do this. I, I think that, you know, if we're going to paint a picture of this character, on the one hand, you know, he wants to go home. He's got this girlfriend. He wants to go back to New York. And he's forced to stay in Italy against his will because he's a, a character witness in this crime. But I think he also is getting some sort of pleasure and excitement out of um, pursuing the killer and trying to solve the mystery. And we find out later that, you know, this has probably inspired him to write at the very end of the movie. Um, but for now, he's basically a detective. So he goes to the antique shop and this whole sequence is a bit common. So we run into the antique shop owner who is flamboyant, but not explicitly gay. Um, however, he's very aggressive towards Sam. Um, and uh, not for nothing, but the movie that Al and I decided not to watch called Death Knocks Twice, he's in that movie, this guy who's in the, the gallery. Um, completely different character, obviously. Why did you guys decide not to watch that? Well, I decided not to watch it because I fucking hated it. And <laughs> I I asked Al if he would mind if we switched to a different film, and he said, no, I don't mind. So... Okay. I tried four times to watch it. It's terrible. Al, did you ever make an attempt to watch it? No. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, Al, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Sam kind of <clears throat> comes into the gallery pretending to be interested in antiques, but then he goes, oh, isn't that, isn't this the place where that girl was murdered? And of course, the gallery owner is um, very interested in providing details and we find out that um there was a painting that was in the window of the art gallery that was sold at the very end of the day and after that sale the girl who made the sale left unannounced and then was found dead later on um <clears throat> so Obviously, we all want to know what is this painting? What does it look like? And Sam says, "Can I have a? Um, can I borrow this copy that you have of it?" And it is. This is the equivalent of the statue in the Screaming Mimi, and it's a depiction of a comical. I think the 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 antique guy describes it as naive but macabre at the same time. Um, and it depicts a man or a figure in a fedora and a black trench coat murdering or attacking a girl, uh, in a snowy kind of village. And Sam's takes the photocopy of the, of the painting home, puts it up on the, on the, uh, on the wall. And um, when Julia comes home, she's like, oh, this is really bothering me. It's morbid. Um, it gives me the shivers. And I have in my notes a question for Matt or, you know, whoever. There's this amazing transition that they do where they zoom in to the picture that's on the wall in black and white. 
and somehow it morphs into the colorized version of the painting and then zooms back out and we're in a different location. And I have no idea how they did that. Does Matt, do you have any, any clue as to how they pulled that off? Just having the, well, they either grayscaled the image when they were zooming into it, or they just switched out two different things at the, on the close up. Cause you can't see any cut. There's no cut whatsoever. That's noticeable. Yeah. I don't know. It's so cool. One of my favorite things that they did in this film. It's probably in post, honestly, like the zoom in, they probably just like pulled the color out of it and then okay. back out, um, amp the color back up. So basically from a thematic standpoint or from a, from a plot standpoint, we, we are now shown that the killer has the painting in their house lair, you know, whatever studio. And we, we see the killer dressed up, uh, selecting a knife. And then we cut to the scene where the fourth victim is walking through, uh, whatever you'd want to call it. These, um, this public square, this, this park area at night. And it's really well lit. Um, it's just gorgeous. Like, the, the cinematography here is just so nice. Um, she's walking around. Um, and Argento or whoever is responsible plays with this idea of point of view. And at one point when the woman walks over to the police, you can see that the camera goes to, for a second to hide behind a tree. So it's like, okay, it is a point of view shot. And then she keeps walking and she walks over to her flat and then the camera um, zooms out and we see the killer in the frame, um, which I thought was really interesting. Like, I, you know, I don't know, you know, when, once you finally get to the slasher genre in the 80s, the point of view shot is used everywhere. Um, but here it's almost like Argento or whoever was still experimenting with the idea of the killer point of view. So what do you guys think about this? It seems to slip in and out, but I think it's on purpose. I don't think it's like accidental or anything like that. Yeah. I think switching from one to the other would kind of create a little, um, unease in the viewer because you're expecting it to stay one way and then when it changes that kind of throws you off because like that shot with her walking through the park or whatever and then like you the camera goes behind the tree and then you see the hand on the tree like it is a little jarring but it's like you realize what's happening Right. I mean, almost to confirm, like, just in case you didn't know or just in case you were you you weren't 100 percent sure. Yes, the killer is there and he's stalking her. And after she goes into her um, her house. 
and she goes up to the mirror and she changes her uh she 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 looks in the mirror and she i think she takes her shirt off and she's in her bra and then they cut to the the killer with some sort of keychain and i don't know if it's because he's looking for something to pick the lock or he has the key or i don't know how he got in but it's just a transition and for those of you who are watching it on youtube the version that i'm watching they fade out the nudity which is really pissing me off right now i was now. gonna ask you if that because i'm like i remember more nipples in this movie yeah if you watch it on youtube they it looks like they're fading out the nudity you gotta watch you gotta watch it some other way i guess um so then we have this iconic scene i keep using the word iconic i gotta change it my daughter says that all the time she's she's 12 and iconic is a word that's being used in you know the gen z um language these days yeah anyway is iconic yeah yeah absolutely so you know she's laying on the bed she's got this see-through teddy going on it's it's oh. the whole the whole thing is fantastic yeah um but <laughs> amazing talk, by the way talking about point of view shots now we have a victim point of view shot She's smoking her cigarette. You can actually see the clouds of smoke that she's exhaling in the shot. She moves her hand to the left to to butt the thing out in the ashtray. And then, you know, we we've already seen the empty door frame. And now um, that we follow the hand back to the ashtray, we follow the hand back again. And now the killer is in the doorway and. I think in 1970 that probably would have been pretty fucking shocking. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, not as effective now in 2023, but you know, because we're kind of we've seen it all for the most yeah. part. And that just going back to that um, that ashtray is still on my wish list, man. <laughs> That is the most beautiful J&B ashtray. Like, I love it. Yeah, dude, for sure. You could even do cigars in that thing. Oh, my God. But, like, the killer in the door frame is so slight. Like, yeah. it's obviously not the same person that Sam saw. I don't know if that's, like, something that you could, you could look at and go, oh, this is definitely... Um, not the killer. Yeah, this is Monica. I yeah. Think. <clears throat> but I'm trying to figure out if doing the doorway thing, because like people know how tall doorways are for the most part. And yeah. we know the killer is six foot one or however many um, whatever metric. Right. Um, like, would the audience go like, well, that person looks short, or am I, like, reading way too much into this? Like, is this a clue from the film to let us know? I don't know. I mean, you're right. You could definitely see that they took the time to put a silhouette in the doorway that looks shorter than normal. Um but yeah, did anybody notice? That's a good question. I don't know. I think it's just it's it's on screen too quickly, and the shock of it 
um, probably detracts from you paying attention to the details of how tall the figure is, you know. Yeah. Um, so then we have the murder sequence and it's very psychosexual. The killer, um, uses his knife to, uh, cut through the middle of the Teddy. There's a little bit of a, of a blood that's coming out of the chest area of the, of the victim. Um, and then there's the removal of the underwear and what we should assume is some sort of um, phallic stabbing in the vagina area. But it's not shown that way. I mean, you could certainly argue that the killer um, stabbed her in the stomach or in the throat because it's not shown. But um, the idea that the, the underwear was removed kind of is a is a dead giveaway that this is a sexual psychosexual kind of a of a situation but um you know if you if you watch um what have you done to solange it it's more explicit <laughs> you know where they have the uh where they have the x-ray of the knife yeah. in the vagina <laughs> that's what i was thinking of <laughs> It's like somebody watched this and thought, you know what they really needed? Fucking like x-ray. Because I'm, you know, and it probably tortured them for years. Where did he stab her? How do we know? It looks kind of like maybe. So. <laughs> yeah, they, they decided to take it to the next level in that movie. <clears throat> did you guys notice that in um, Sam's apartment, he has a statue next to the bed that looks almost exactly like the statues at the gallery. It's like a, a human figure ish, like hmm. seeing the wall. And so you should just see its butt. No, it's by the bed next to the window. Huh. And there's a few sculptures in this apartment. And I was wondering if maybe his girlfriend, Julia is supposed to be a sculptress or, I thought there'd be some kind of connection because I mean, you can't ignore the fact that the, the art gallery is full of statues and then this guy's apartment is full of statues, but they and never they connect like the two made, dots. They look like they're made out of the same material. Right. Yeah. Like nasty gray shit. And I just noticed too, like, are they supposed to be engaged or married or something? Or are they just, Whatever. No, it's only been a month that they've been together. I thought it was a month that they hadn't had sex. Oh. Well, I don't know. Anyway, she's wearing an engagement ring or a wedding band or something oh. when she's on the floor in the bathroom. Okay. So I didn't know if that was a thing. Well, Sam says something about she's away on a modeling gig in the beginning of the movie. So I think she's a model. Well, if she was the model for that statue next to the bed, she needs to <laughs> out. <laughs> so, uh, back at Sam and Julia's, um, after the murder happens, we get a visit from Morosini. And 
I don't know if you guys noticed the Black Power uh, poster on the wall. Um, and yeah. there's so many books in this in this uh, flat too that are just kind of like stacked everywhere. But anyway, um, Morosini uh, enters the building and he does mention um, that there's nobody else in this building, which is important. Um, because eventually the killer will come here and, you know, nobody can rescue Julia because there's nobody in the building. Um, but, um, at any rate, Morosini comes in, he's, he's flustered. He looks tired. Uh, Sam gives him a cup of coffee and he says, I've been up all night because, um, there's been another killing. He shows him the paper and, there's this throwaway line that um, happens when Julia comes out. Morosini says, I think we've met somewhere before. And I, <laughs> I don't really even know what the purpose of that was just to just, you know, create some sort of red herring with Julia being the murderer or, you know, wh- why did they do that? I don't, I don't yeah, have a clue. Yeah, that doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go anywhere. Well, is, right. is she a model, like a famous model or something? Like, did they see her in a magazine ad or something? He's like, oh, yeah, I masturbated to you last night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's one of those peep show girls. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm on your OnlyFans. <laughs> right. And he probably busted her in a raid like 10 years ago. Well, I don't know, maybe three or four years earlier. <laughs> and she's just uh, gold digging the writer guy here. But Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. And I really want a set of these cup and, cups and saucers. Saucers, They're really cool. Okay, those cups in Italy for the kind of coffee maker that he has on his stove, they don't go together at all. Oh, he's got the mocha pot, right? Right. You'd have those little tiny espresso cups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To go with those. Oh, yeah, those would look like more like teacups almost. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um. So Morosini's like, look, I need you to come to the police station with me again. And, and Julia's like, come on, man. He's not even Italian. You're making him risk his life. All this other stuff. <laughs> Um, he's not even italian he's not even italian why would you make him risk his life um but they basically brush her off and he kisses her and says ah you're just a dumb girl i'm gonna leave now um so they go back to the police station and sam is going through again they're you know replaying the scene in his mind um morrison he said like here um here's your passport back um i think at this point morrison knows that it's not Sam, that's the the killer, which is why he gives him his passport back. Um, but he also knows that Sam is really kind of involved now and wants to, you know, push on. And so um, Sam says, you know, I'm going to stick around and try to figure this out. And Marcini's like, do you need any help in your investigation? And <laughs> Sam was like, um, I want to see Garulo, who is the pimp who um was related to the second victim i want to see garulo the giraffes the hippos (laughs) (laughs) 
so after this scene, Morrissini goes on TV to give the public an update on what's going on. Uh, because at this point there's four killings and the pre you know, the, the, the public is starting to figure out that there's a serial killer and we have a really cool scene where the killer is actually watching the press conference through the TV. You know, there's a TV in a window of a department store, which you could apparently hear through the window and, um, the killer goes over to the phone and calls Morrissini. And Morrissini picks up the phone and the killer says, I, you know, uh, I just wanted to tell you that I enjoyed your talk on television and there's going to be another murder by the end of the week. And um, they try to trace the call, but, you know, the killer is too fast for them. Now, this will be important later because this killer and this phone call has been recorded and will be analyzed. Um, but before it gets analyzed, um, there's a scene where Sam goes to the gallery and they are erecting the big uh, square death trap sculpture death sculpture death trap. And um, Monica comes down and says, I really want to thank you for helping me. Uh, they say that uh, you saved my life. And then she's in the middle of explaining something and, um, Alberto says, Monica, please come here. And he's, you could tell that they have this weird relationship where he's kind of in control in certain situations, but obviously in other situations, he's not because she's the killer. Um, I mean, maybe she's the killer, but in every other aspect, she's a submissive. I don't know. Um, but we get a glimpse into this relationship and that's really the end of the scene. Um, we don't really get too much characterization of Monica and Alberto um, until much later. Um, after this scene, Sam goes to visit Garulo, um, and he says uh, something, 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 so long. And Sam's like, okay. He gets up to leave, and he's like, where are you going? And he's like, well, you said so long. And he's like, oh, well, I just say that because if I don't, I will stutter. Um, and, you know, cut back to two hours ago when I asked Al what the hell so long means in Italian and how does this actually translate? And, uh, we really don't have an answer. So, um, pet project for Al is to watch the Italian version and see what his name is. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's but basically, basically Garulo is no help. He doesn't give Sam anything to go on. Um, so the next scene, Sam and Julia are walking outside and Julia says, Hey, we're being followed. And Sam says, yeah, that's no problem. That's our bodyguard. And she's like, wow, that's pretty cool. And, you know, maybe she even has a little bit more respect for Sam because he's cool enough to have his own bodyguard. Yeah. But, uh, out of nowhere, a Mercedes with um, f fish fins in the back comes barreling down the road and runs the bodyguard off the road and hits him. And um, Julia and Sam kind of scramble to get away. 
and uh, the car that uh, hit the police, you know, the, who hit the bodyguard police officer, um, pulls off to the side, and we see this man get out, and he is, as Matt described in episode one, one of the ugliest people I've ever seen on on a movie. Uh, the um, the man with the yellow jacket and the tight ball sack face <laughs> <laughs> the cold water scrotum face yeah <laughs> it shrinks it, it, it's like he was like botox dude before botox like it's it's really a strange face dude yeah and he's in another Jallo. I think he's in a movie called The Killer Must Kill Again. That's what I remember. Um, but, I mean, he looks obviously foreign, right? I mean, for it, I don't, I don't want to pin myself down to making any sort of comments that would be considered racist, but in Italy, would you see a person that looked like this in normal? The German people sent him down. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, he almost looks like South American to me. We're talking about the guy with the yellow jacket? Yeah, yeah. yeah. South American. Uh... He just has a darker complexion. He almost looks, you know. I don't know. I think it's a tan. That's why his skin's so bad. I think his last name's Goebbels. <laughs> well, it could be a tan. It could be, uh, you know, southern Italy's pretty close to North Africa. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, if you listen to uh, Dennis Hopper and True Romance, uh, darker complexions and among Italians are nothing new. So it just, it's, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that he just doesn't fit. He doesn't look like anybody else in this movie. And he serves the purpose of being an assassin. And so we're treated to this really well filmed, well edited sequence of. Sam being chased through this giant bus parking lot uh, by this guy in the yellow jacket who has obviously been, you know, hired by somebody else to kill him because, you know, we see his face and, you know, it, you know, back in 1970, maybe it was it was a different situation, but for us, we're watching this going, well, this isn't, this isn't the killer, obviously. I mean, because we know the way these films work. And for the most part, we've already seen a bunch of different scenes where the killer's identity is being hidden. So all of a sudden we have this guy that's going after Sam and we see his face over and over and over again. It's clearly not the main guy. Um, so he's just kind of a hired helper. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he chases Sam through this 
through these these yards and these parking lots and again very well lit very well edited and it reminded me of some of the films that uh, al and i have watched up until this point where it's more about the action and you know the spy thriller elements of the of the proto jolly um i think argento was inspired by some of that to create this sequence um because that's what it reminds me of but you know i thought it was really well done oh i'm so confused right now with this um yeah i i it's funny because like i've seen this movie so many fucking times and i keep and i know that it's like a boxing group but for some reason every time i see the jacket i'm like oh yeah this is the bowling guy from that bowling league like i i never put it like i i don't remember it right off the bat as a scary boxer guy what what's the bowling league no because i see the b and the three. Oh, okay um, oh his jacket like and all the guys who wear those jackets they're on a bowling team <laughs> and like yeah it just it takes me a minute well it's it's a really i think it's a really well done sequence and and again i think this film the midsection, you know, acts to, you know, act, I don't know how many acts you would say that are in this film, but the, the middle section after Sam kind of decides to not pursue the clues that lead him to Alberto and then eventually get him back to Alberto, um, all that, all this midsection, um, this particular scene um, is a lot of filler. Yeah. And it's entertaining. Yeah. And if you're watching this in 1970, you're just kind of following along blindly. Like, it hey, looks amazing. Where are we going next? You know. Yeah. Um, but what's really cool about this is after he is done being the victim of being chased, he becomes the chaser because now all of a sudden we're in public. And he's like, hey, this guy's trying to kill me. And now Sam's chasing him, but not in the same way. He's kind of like stalking. And eventually they make it to this, uh, the lobby of this hotel. And there's this guy walking around going, Mrs. Johnson. Um, and Sam's like, did you see a guy with a yellow jacket? Yeah, yeah, he's in there. And I love this. I love the way they do this where. Sam's standing in front of this door and he opens the door with both hands and they, the the door slides up out in both directions and he sees one yellow jacket and he's like, Holy shit, he's right there. And then he opens the door a little bit more and it's like, Oh no, there's all these yellow jackets. And there's a guy who's standing there trying to get everybody who's there to kind of come together. And it's the Third Congress of ex-boxers. Is that what that sign says, Al? Yeah. Okay. They use a term that is uh, related to pugilist. Like pugili is boxer, right? Pugili. Mm-hmm. Pugili. Well, plural for pugilo. Oh, okay. Pugilo is one boxer? Yeah. So pugili is pugilist's. 
dude, Matt, how great it is to have Al on the on the fucking podcast, dude. It's like, amazing, and it drives me crazy because <laughs> like there were so many times that we didn't know what the fuck we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> and if Al would have been there, he would have just been. Because, like, Al started coming around to, like, let me know all the stupid <laughs> shit I was saying. <laughs> so if Al would have been there from day one, it would have been so much easier. It would have been like, oh, man, like, you're killing it. Like, you you handle this, dude. I'm going to just hang out. Uh, the, the, the first time I remembered, the first time I can recollect how valuable Al is to the podcast was when I kept talking about why are the faucets in the bathtubs in the center of the bathtub and not at the end of the bathtub like they are in America? And Al had a perfectly logical explanation for this, and it had to do with you know the way that the, the pipes are set up in these old buildings and whatnot. But it was just like uh, – anyway, it, it's Al Appreciation Day. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate Al. <laughs> So anyway, um, Sam is obviously completely befuddled by the fact that the guy that he's looking for is wearing a jacket amongst a crowd of at least 100 other people wearing the same jacket. And it is another false, another dead end, as it were. And there will be plenty more of those to come. Meanwhile, the bodyguard who was hit by the car driven by we think Alberto is dead and Morosini is not happy about this. And so he kind of um, revs up the investigation and he tells uh, his uh, subordinates to make sure that there are people that are watching Julia and Sam at all times, because we know that the killer will try again to uh, get to, to, to get Sam and Sam's like, um, look, I know that I should probably leave the country, but I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to the answer every day because the killer continues to try to get me. And every time he tries to get me, he risks exposure. So for for better or for worse, Sam decides, you know, I'm going to stick it out. Um, from there, we get a glimpse at the fifth victim. And... At this point, we don't get any of the preemptive stuff. We don't get the photographs. We don't get the the stalking. We just get, hey, she's being dropped off at her house, and she's going to get killed. But before she gets killed, we are treated to the most unique spiral staircase in all of Jalo, which is shaped like a triangle. And um, I just love this scene. It's just, you know, I, one of the things I was thinking about when I was watching this and thinking about the podcast was, you know, spiral staircases are really a big deal in Jalo films. Um, but at the same time, it's not really that big of a stretch to look down a spiral staircase and say, wow, this looks cool. Let me film this. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like they put in the staircases. Like they just found all these beautiful staircases. Yeah, and it's like let's add this to what's going on. And like, and the film that we we just covered last podcast, Shadow of Death, is almost the exact same kind of 
point of view shot down the the spiral staircase. Um, if you if you remember, Al, when when they go to um, that woman's house and the killer, not the killer, but the the guy, the blackmailer, he's up on the top floor right. and he's looking down. Um, it's almost the same shot. So, like, well, there's only two ways you can shoot a spiral staircase, right? Yeah, like, like up. up or down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, you know, I, I tend to think that Argento was paying attention or Argento, the the people who made this film were paying attention to all the films that came before it and um, wanted to kind of capitalize on some of the ideas that they had. But again, the idea that, you know, shooting a spiral staircase from the bottom up or from the top down looks good is not far fetched. It's not like some in, brilliant, you know, inspirational idea. And that raises the question, why don't more movies of every genre have more shots of spiral staircases? Yes. I mean, I don't think it would take the, uh, you know, the aesthetic appreciation of a Jalo fan to like the view from the top or bottom of a spiral staircase. Right. They should be in action movies. They should be in comedies. They should be in uh, <laughs> dramas, everything, biopics, documentaries. So fall down a spiral staircase down the stairs, not just down the chute in the middle, but someone needs to like roll down the entire staircase. <laughs> yeah. That'd be cool. There needs well, to be more of that. There's so much of a difference between that tight spiral that you see in I can't think of a movie off the top of my head, but like it's, you know, it's a very narrow, tight spiral. And then you have these other ones that are like that span the entire, you know, um, the the entire space of the lobby uh, like this in this particular scene. But anyway. Um, what I'm getting at is that we have the fifth victim, um, and at this point, the movie is isn't really um, getting, giving you details. Here's a woman; she's being dropped off by her husband or her boyfriend, not her husband. I'm sorry, but being dropped off by her boyfriend, and <clears throat> she gets into the uh, she's into the, fuck, dude, in that skirt. Oh my god. Yeah, she's hot too. Um. She goes in, she tries the the elevator, it's out of service. She goes to walk up the uh, the staircase, and before she gets too far, she notices that the lights go out on the top floor, but she keeps going. She lights a candle, it gets more and more spooky. And again, these are really just scenes for the sake of um, mood. Yeah. But eventually, um, she gets to... It looks like either a door or a lobby or a vestibule or maybe even um, an elevator car. I can't really tell um, where she goes because if she's walked up all these stairs, she's not getting into the elevator. She's getting into her flat, I guess. But <laughs> at any rate, um, the killer's right there and he, and he hits her and she falls down. And he gets out the straight razor and he just does this like maniacal, abusive, you know, slashing with the straight razor. And we don't see any of the 
impact. We don't see any penetration of razor on flesh. And it's very Hitchcockian in that regard because every time they make a cut with the editing, they're making a cut with the razor at the same time and the blood comes out. And um, mm-hmm. the, per- the, 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 the person responsible for editing this film really deserves some credit because it's really well edited, um, especially the scenes like you know, the, the art gallery scene and this particular scene, um, it's very artistic. I like it a lot. Um, so moving on, uh, Sam goes back to talk to so long again and so long says, Hey, you need to talk to this guy named Farina, call the pool hall and ask for him. Um, and now, you know, again, we're on another tangent that really need leads to nowhere, but Farina um shows up at sam's house in the next scene and it's very comical he does this thing where he says he knows nothing and then he says what do you want to know and then he says (laughs) um i don't want any money but give me the money and then he says um and then sam says when will you hear from me and he says never maybe tomorrow morning you know it's it's like um it's almost an abbott and costello routine that's what reminded me of um, and there's a J&B bottle on the table, which uh, is important. Um, but basically, the idea is that Sam is pursuing the lead of the guy with the yellow jacket. He's not paying any attention to the real information, which is the the left-handed art gallery owner and husband of the woman who was attacked. <laughs> He's pursuing this weird guy who doesn't look like he belongs anywhere near Rome, um, who wears a yellow jacket of, of, of ex-boxers. I don't know. So um, Farina says, uh, give me 100000 And Julia's like, why are you taking my money away from me? Um, don't give him this money. But uh, Sam gives him the money and he says, okay, you may hear from me tomorrow morning. And leaves. Um, so, uh, let's see what happens after this. Uh, YouTube gives me a commercial. That's what happens. Um, (laughs) (laughs) oh, okay. The killer gives a call to Sam and he said, um, forget about the murders, go back to America. And then he says, uh, is that your girlfriend with you? She's very beautiful. I want to kill her. And in the middle of this conversation, there's this weird sound. And luckily for us and Sam, they just happen to have a reel-to-reel tape recorder on the table with an adapter that you can plug into the back of the listening part of the phone receiver. And for my millennials and well, not my millennials, but for my Gen Z audience, um, there was a time when the phone had two different parts to it where you would hear something on one side and speak into it on the other side. And so they put this little um, suction cup microphone thing on the listening part of the telephone receiver and they can record it. Uh, so 
Sam and Julia are smart enough to have the wherewithal to record this conversation. And the killer, uh, again, threatens Sam and he also threatens Julia. And Sam is smart enough to say, let me take this tape to the police station and let Morosini take a look at it. So Morosini takes a look at it and. Um, uh, let's see. I'm sorry. I'm going a little ahead here. Um, yeah, Farini, uh, uh, Sam gives the tape to the police and Morosini says, all right, take this, this, uh, this tape and analyze it. We go back to Sam's apartment and he gets a call from Farina and Farina says, here's an address related to the information that you wanted. You should go there. So Sam goes there. And then we have another one of these scenes that's very much like um, the bus chase scene. It kind of leads to nowhere, but it's also at the same time very intense and well lit and very suspenseful. And it makes you kind of pay attention to what's going on instead of thinking about the logic of this whole film. Um and Sam eventually finds his way into this room and eventually finds um, the man who put the hit out or, or tried to kill him. The, the, the man with the um, yellow jacket with the yellow jacket. Right. Thank you. At the very end of this sequence um, where Sam uh, goes to the address that he's been given by Farina. He is looking around the flat. There's nobody there. He finds this hypodermic needle for some reason. And then they do this really cool thing where we notice that there's a, a dead body before Sam does the, the arm falls down at first. And then while Sam is looking at the uh, hypodermic needle, he bends down and when he bends down, we see the yellow jacket guy dead uh, in some sort of crawl space or something. Like this whole this whole scene was shot really well. And that dip down is like what he's going to do in Tenebrae. Yes. Know, oiler. Yeah, that's <laughs> like uh, that's yeah, the Tenebrae. That yeah, totally. And, and there's another flash forward to uh, Tenebrae coming up. At, towards the end. Besides well, the typewriter? No. Well, okay. That makes three then. <laughs> um, I was thinking about the pointy statue trying oh. to be used oh, yeah. as a weapon. Yeah. Right. And then well, didn't I, you have a bird with crystal plumage in Suspiria? Or am I just going yes. to say that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. There, okay. There's a statue of a bird in Suspiria and the um the the Susie Kendall character she grabs one of the feathers which is actually a knife or a, a dagger of some sort and stabs the you know the air <laughs> which which is which is highlighted the shape of the witch is highlighted by the lightning flash in the air i mean you know you think this movie has some problems <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of the three mothers very much. Let's let's go back to the idea that um Matt has decided that Argento is style over substance. <laughs> he has four shots that he will just continue using the rest of his career. <laughs> yeah, this movie is like his Led Zeppelin one. Right. It's a preview of everything that's about to follow. It's so true, dude. Like it's it's such a Led Zeppelin one film. Oh my god. I'm so glad you brought that up. That 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 oh, strikes such a chord with me. That's fucking hysterical. The deep red is Led Zeppelin four. <laughs> and Tenebrae is physical graffiti. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Um, and dark glasses is in through the outdoor. <laughs> No, it's not. In Through the Outdoor is way better than Dark Glasses. Come on now. Okay, so Dark Glasses is the biggest piece of shit ever. <laughs> Matt, have you seen that? What? Have you seen Dark Glasses? No, is that his new one? Yeah, his latest one from like no. a year ago. Uh, I gave up on him making good shit like a while back. Well, Dark Glasses starts out so amazing. Like it, you watch the first 10 minutes of dark glasses and you go, fuck, Argento is back. And then you watch the next 80 minutes and you're like, fuck. See, that's the problem right there. There's 80 extra minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing more suspenseful than the first, whatever it is. Like the other thing about Argento, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but like the, I won't bring it up yet. I'll wait for fuck's sake. Oh my God. All right. Um, so after the sequence where Sam gets to the point where he understands that, you know, it's another dead end. Um, he's been led to the location of the hitman, but the hitman's been killed. You know, he's really not important. He's inconsequential. Um, the next scene is I think they're at the uh, police station and they're analyzing the audio between the phone call that came in when Morrissey was doing his press conference and the phone call that Sam got from the killer in his house. And this, one of the CSI people is like, yeah, if you look at the waveforms of these two audio files, you'll notice that they are, they have a different signature, which basically means that there are two different people. And for the first time in the film, we are given a piece of information that's really important, which is that there are two people involved in all of this. And it kind of throws a monkey wrench into everything um, because we're trying to follow this killer and trying to, you know, follow these leads and whatnot. And um, now if there's two people and, you know, of course, Morrissey says, well, maybe, uh, it's not that there's two killers, but maybe the killer is bringing an accomplice into the situation. So um, this, I mean, you could say this is pseudoscience, but it really isn't because what all, all the things that they're saying in this is true. Like um, the wave signature of a voice is unique, just like a fingerprint. No. The pseudoscience is the fucking dark glasses that the fucking scientist lab coat fucker wears. <laughs> That's where the pseudoscience comes in. He's like, I could see through your skin with my glasses. It's like he has cataracts or something. <laughs> yeah, for real. He's like, it's way too bright here. 
I, I need my glasses on to read my dot matrix fucking recipe book. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Uh, besides the fact that they're analyzing the two phone calls, they're also analyzing the sound um, that came from the second call. Um, they're comparing it against all these other sounds that they have in some sort of sound library, but they haven't found uh, a match. And at the end of the scene, Sam says, yeah, um, I'm leaving the day after tomorrow. I guess I said that before. And they, they have a little chuckle. Uh, so back at Sam and Julia's place again, uh, Carlo visits. And um, Sam says, guess what? My writer's block is gone. This whole murder investigation has got me writing again. I've got like 40 pages um, that I that I've typed up in the last, you know, whatever day or so. And they're in the middle of packing to leave for New York. Um, I don't know that we need to 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 spend too much time on this, but Sam was so gung ho with trying to figure out who the killer was and and the investigation, even after he got his passport back. And now all of a sudden it's like, all right, I can't wait to go home. Um, but, you know, it may be because every time he tries to follow a lead, it leads to nowhere. So, um, I guess well, he decided his leads though. Yeah. I just, I watched that scene with the painting changing color. Um, like his, he, it's like, he's not trying to find the killer. He's trying to find the motive. Yeah. You know, with all of his running around and shit. And I don't know when the fuck he wrote 40 pages of anything. It's like while Julia was sleeping after he banged her, he, he couldn't go to sleep and he got on the, the typewriter and he, he got on the metronome and sort of <laughs> type metronome worked out for once. Um, so Sam plays the audio of the call from the killer to Carlo and Carlo says, Hey, wait a minute, play that back again. Oh, that sound sounds familiar. I'm not sure where it's from, but it sounds familiar. Give me the tape and let me take it. And then, um, well, they Art- don't say that. Cause he's like trying to have sex and right. Right in front of his friend. Like you do all the fucking time. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then he just leaves. And then he's like, oh, wait, I can't have sex because I got a lead in my brain for something that happened. And now I got to go. Well, you know, I think Argento does this a lot. And I've seen this in other Italian films that are not Argento films where there's two things going on at the scene at the same time. Or there's a distraction or there's something that's taking your attention away from what's really going on. And I find this to be, you know, something that is used over and over and over again. Um, so I think Argento did this, this particular scene where, you know, he, Sam and Julia start getting it on, and Carlo is just sitting there smoking a cigarette, and he's like, "Ah, uh, okay, let me get out of here." Um, well, see, he's not smoking a cigarette; he's smoking a cigar. Oh, and you would think. Mr. Amateur Detective, who was so keen to find out that uh, 
Alberto was left-handed, would notice, A, that this guy's smoking a cigar, which may or may not be fancy and have special ashes that a criminal, uh, well, a forensic scientist would get excited about. (laughs) But he's so distracted by uh, Julia offering to throw him some that he he completely doesn't notice that dude just picked up the tape of the phone call and took off with it. <laughs> and there's red herring paint all over the walls. And he's yeah. just, yeah, not I, even... was, I was real suspicious of this dude. The first time I saw this movie. Yeah. I, I mean, I really thought it was him. Well, I would be distracted if Julia was trying to get it on with me too. Yeah. Something has to be up. <laughs> You're right. But the thing is, um, Carlo is smoking that, that cigar with his right hand. Yeah, but see, now we know there's two killers. So oh, yeah, right. I think we're supposed to think that Alberto is one and Carlo's probably the other because he's he's stealing the tape and he's smoking a, a cigar. Yeah, that's that's really like insightful. And I wonder if because I'm stupid enough to not notice it. Um, Is it something that they expected? Like, it, it, did they put this into the film thinking that some people would really pick up on it? I I think so. So, I mean, it's not an accident that he, he's smoking a cigar. You know, I mean, we, that scene earlier with Alberto when he said, um, I'm looking for my cigarettes or can you throw me my cigarettes? That made me think, oh, it's not him because he he smokes, smokes cigars. cigars. I mean, he's. Right. Right. Yeah. The chick smokes cigars, right? Is that the deal? Well, I mean, uh, I don't if you're if you're a cigar smoker, you might also be a cigarette smoker. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, right. I guess. But cuz 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 cigarettes you you inhale and cigars you typically don't. Yeah. <clears throat> Like cigarettes are more like an enjoyment thing, like, you know, a, a good bottle of red wine, but uh, cigars are and cigarettes are like, you know, your Bud Light, get the job done kind of thing. Oh, you need right. to fucking wash your fucking mouth out with soap right now, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm washing my, my mouth out with Grand Gala. I recommend it to everyone. If you're you, washing your mouth out with Canadian Italian liqueur. Right. If, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening to this, if, if you, you like Grand Marnier, and Grand Marnier is really fucking expensive, yeah. there is another version of Grand Marnier called Grand Gala, which is about half the price and just as delicious. Anyway. Um, well, you know, speaking of price of liqueur and sitting here with the, the frame stopped on the J&B bottle... <laughs> When I first started doing these podcasts with you, I went out and bought a bottle of J&B to kind of, you know, have a shot before recording the first sure. episode. It costs nine euro and 90 cents. The other day I was at the store and I was thinking, well, I'll grab a bottle for the 100th episode, you know. In a, what, a year and a half I've been yeah. doing this with you? It's gone up to 12.90. Wow. So... 
Fucking Bidenomics fucking you up in Italy, dude. In Italy, yeah. All the way – well, believe me, I hear quite often how inflation of everything from breakfast cookies to a a box of milk is Biden's fault. But (laughs) I blame that more on Fox News being broadcast over here than anything else. (laughs) You got your own fucking ton of problems and shit with fucking – um, Mrs. Mussolini or whoever you got over there now, right? Yeah, Maloney. Yeah. Well, over here, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to Italian politics because so much interesting things have been happening elsewhere. That's uh, for sure. Yeah. But just in case anybody's curious, if uh, if you want to buy a bottle of J&B, uh, when you come to visit Italy, uh, depending on how far ahead you're planning that trip, you might want to start saving up now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think I'm uh, going to be heading out there next year, actually. Nice. Cool. So, um, I'm supposed to stay with a buddy in Barcelona and Spain for a little bit, but um, I really want to go to Italy and get a little Vespa and cruise around and witness a murder and try to solve it. <laughs> get your passport taken away. Yeah. <laughs> try to work on my book, you know, that's the plan. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's, let's soldier on here. Um, so, uh, Carlo leaves, he takes the tape. Um, Julia and Sam are in the throes of everything, but Sam all of a sudden decides, that there's one lead that he hasn't followed yet, which is the painting. Duh. He's had the painting for like fucking two days, three days, but it's just been up on the wall collecting dust. Um, he's like, you know what? Um, if the first victim was killed because she sold the painting to someone, let me find out who painted the painting and maybe I can get some more information. So he gets up from the middle of coitus with uh, Susie Kendall, uh, a.k.a. Julia, which I don't know why you would do that. But yeah. he gets on the phone. He <laughs> he calls the, the antique shop. He talks to the same guy who um, was there before. And the uh, the man on the other end says, hey, um, the, the the painter's name is Berto Consalti. And um, he gives him the address. Why he would have the address is beyond me, but it doesn't matter because we're, you know, 15 minutes away from the end of the movie. If they sell that dude's work normally, I mean, they probably get it directly from him. So, right, right. That makes sense. I get that. Okay. One note about what they say about the painter's address in. I don't know why I didn't notice this the first time I watched this, because I was living here the first time I watched this. He tells him the painter lives in a town called Aviano. I live in Aviano, and there's only one Aviano in all of Italy. (laughs) And there is no way you can get from Rome to Aviano in an hour and a half. (laughs) Well, there's a train strike. So, right. Well, then he'd have to fly to Venice and take a train and the train from Venice to Aviano was an hour and a half. So, mm. 
But uh, good, uh, you know, I'm glad there's a shout out to uh, where I am right now <laughs> in Baba's, I mean, uh, Argento's first jolly. So Do you, you use a ladder to get into your house? <laughs> uh, no, not yet. I could. <laughs> but I live on the first floor, so I could jump down and there's only about eight foot fall to break my leg. So. And that's not the ground floor. Don't oh, forget. That, that's right. Floor. Yeah. I live on the first floor. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the second floor. <laughs> Goddamn Italians. All right. Um, so before Sam leaves to decide to pursue this artist, Julia is just having a fucking fit in the bed. She's, she's smashing things. She's pissed off. She's like, why are you doing this? We're about to leave. We're about to go home. You're killing me. And at one point, she even throws like a glass vase or a bottle or I don't something at him. Don't start fucking after glass starts breaking. Like <laughs> if if a woman like breaking plates or glasses at you doesn't get you hard, like you're <laughs> doing it wrong, dude. Like once that happens, you go back for it because that's, that's going to be the good stuff. That's the whole consent, not consent thing. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it doesn't matter because it looks like she's already packed the metronome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So so what were they going to do? Right. She she was going to hum. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) She was going to do like a beatbox uh, or something. uh, uh, That uh, could be cool, (laughs) depending on exactly how it's done. Ladies and gentlemen, the alcohol is taking over. Uh, All right. Um, and then since it's Led Zeppelin one, there was going to be some, like John Bonham, like double bass action. And he's going to have to like catch up. With that. She's gonna go, uh, 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 how, uh, how many more times is a great song. That's the last one on Led Zeppelin one. All right. So Sam gets a ride out to visit Berto Consalti and Berto is um, kind of walled up in his room. He doesn't even have a door. Um, Sam says, come on, I want to buy something for my house. Uh, I want to buy a painting. And Berto um, sends out the ladder and, and lets him up. And again, this whole scene, you know, it serves a bunch of different purposes. Obviously, we know at this point that the Berto Consulti character is a famous actor. So this is a familiar face that people wanted to see in this movie. Um, but we also want to know, hey, you know, why did you paint that painting? We're trying to follow these clues. So Berto uh, allows him in and uh, Sam comes in and they sit down and they they have a meal together. And um, Berto says that currently he's in a mystical phase and he's painting mystical paintings because he feels mystical. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of fluff here. It's it's co- comical it's interesting. It's, um, you know, it's, 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 um, what's the word? Um, you know, it, it doesn't serve much of a purpose other than to entertain, um, you know, the, 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 the idea that, that Berto gets up out of the middle of nowhere and decides to change the crescent moon into the full moon painting on this painting. And then he says genius and, you know, that whole thing. Um, but, Ultimately, what we're trying to find out here is what the fuck is going on with this painting. And Berto says, "Okay, well, I painted this because I was inspired by a true story that happened to something that, you know, a girl I 10 years ago, a girl I knew was attacked. 
And, um, you know, I don't know that Sam is smart enough to ask the next question, which is, well, tell me more. Or if he's just completely blown away by the idea that he's eating cats. Um, But one way or the other, we don't find out any more information than this. Um, In the middle of their discussion, a cat gets loose and Berto's like, close the door so that he doesn't get away. And then Berto's like, yeah, well, you know, uh, if they move, they get fat. And why do you want them to get fat? Well, because I eat them. And um, Sam's like, oh, I could never eat a cat. And uh, Berto's like, oh, you couldn't really, huh? And he's like a little sarcastic there. And you know, there, there's a scene where Berto takes the plate away from Sam. And Sam's like, no, no, give me one more <laughs> bite, you know, because um, it's so good. He really likes whatever it is that Berto has prepared. And then once he realizes it's a cat, you know, they have this little misinformation moment where Berto is trying to sell him a painting and Sam is saying, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And Berto <laughs> thinks he's he continues to haggle with him about the price of the painting. Meanwhile, Sam is like, oh, dude, I'm so I'm so in shock by the fact that I just realized that I ate a cat for dinner and, <laughs> and leaves. Um so, like, this scene is so weird and entertaining and frustrating all at the same time, you know? And this scene is in it because this dude's a star and they could give him some good billing and people will come see the movie. <laughs> right? Like, that's the deal. Like, that's. Like, this guy's like a big deal. Well, that's a good question. Like, you know, in if you if you had the script written. Prior to the casting, um, you write a new scene if you get a a name for the movie. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, like you know, the idea that the painting was a, one of the major clues in the mystery, and then in the script, Sam decides to pursue the artist of the painting to find out more. Like, is was, the dude a comedian in Italy? Like, is he known not- for comedy? Not really. Most of the films he was doing around this time, and there were spaghetti westerns and poliziotteschi, uh, and a, a couple jolly, but I haven't seen enough of them to have like a full career profile of Mario Eidorf. But I don't remember him ever being humorous or funny or a light-hearted character at all. Usually he's a a bad guy. Um. Uh, I think probably what happened, he, I mean, he had what, 200 and let's see. It's just, yeah, 221 credits up to, you know, just a few years ago. But he was probably very busy at that time between the Spaghetti Westerns and the Poliziotteschi. And maybe they approached him to play the lead or the part of Alberto or something. And if you remember at this time, Dario Argento is the first time director doing an adaptation of a book that was already done like 12 years previous. Yeah. He might've just said, look, I'll, you know, I'll do something, but give me a smaller part. I'm not going to be. And he might've said too, like, 
if like since I only do like serious shit, if you could give me something that's like kind of fun and more yeah yeah, hard, I would be way more interested in doing it. That happens yeah. a lot, so that's that mm-hmm. works. So then he goes to this amazing telephone booth. It's <laughs> like a bubble on a wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he so. tells the shit story about the fucking rail strike that right. just suddenly happened while he was eating cat. <laughs> knows exactly how long the strike's going to be for him to be able to get home in time. Right. That would have been like, what, a two or three hour train strike? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, no that's not happening. Here, so. When they go on strike, they do it at least for a whole day and they let you know a couple weeks ahead of time. But like that goes that scene, though, that's a prime example of there was probably a scene where they had a conversation about something or needed to have a conversation about something. And they either didn't shoot it and they had to shoot this after the fact as a pickup just to connect one scene to the next scene. Right. Yeah, because there's not much of a set. It's just a wall with a little yeah. bubble phone. So, well, and from a from a plot standpoint, we need to establish the fact that um, there's going to be an extended amount of time where Sam is not home, and um, Julia is going to be alone. Yeah, because the very next scene we start with. Um, you know, the, 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 the scene of stalking Julia by the killer. <clears throat> and um, is this um, Monica or uh, Alberto? This is Alberto, I think. Because what color are Monica's eyes? Oh, I don't know. Well, when mm-hmm. he see the door, his face looks more like more lines than Monica's does. Well, I mean, if you're drawing a line in the sand and saying that Monica only kills women for the pleasure of the psychosis and Alberto kills people for the sake of a practical need to protect his wife from uh, incrimination, then what's the motive for killing Julia? Cause she's beautiful. She's a blonde. Um, she's already been threatened, but again, she's been threatened by, um, probably Alberto, because I think the first phone call that they analyzed, the phone call that went to the police is, um, Monica. And the second phone call that went to Sam directly is from Alberto. And we know that they're different. Well, like they were supposed to leave, they didn't leave. So um, they might be trying to kill her or scare her to where they would like go back to New York. But the thing that's so stupid, why the fuck are the killers more worried about this fucking shitty amateur detective than they are about the fucking cops? Like, why don't you go kill the fucking cops? Yeah, this right. amateur detective who's about to leave the country in a few hours. Yeah. Any well, damage he could have done to them, he's already done, and he's about to go. 
So who cares? Why bother him now? Yeah. Well, you know, if you accept the idea that the killer is psychotic, then they hyper focus on Sam and Julia and in a nonsensical way, they focus on them and not, you know. Okay, so that would lean towards this person trying to get through the door with the damn steak knife or whatever is Monica. Because of the psychotic motive as opposed to the practical motive. Right, right, right. Well, I will say, though, at the end of the movie, when the cop is talking to, like, the TV science report channel from hell or whatever the fuck it is, (laughs) um, I wrote it down what he said. He says, um, and he became homicidally psychotic himself. Right. The cops think that he killed somebody. So I think the jealous score needs to be fixed again. Yeah, the the whole idea <laughs> of of psychotic by association, right? Well, he said homicidally psychotic right. by association. So the only way you could be homicidally psychotic is if you homicide somebody. Right. Yeah. Well, um, this particular sequence, again, if we're going with style over substance here, is really well done. Um, there's a couple of scenes where the killer, whoever he is, is making his way into the flat, finding his way in. And Julia, um, she hears something. She thinks it might be Sam or she assumes it's Sam. She goes to the door and again, this whole, um, Whatever the fuck this thing is called, where you think you remember something that never really happened, um, I forget what it's called. It's like a it's like a psychological social sociological phenomena, like a Mandela effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go, Mandela effect. The Mandela effect for me is that Julia goes and opens the door and looks down the stairs and sees a figure you know, emerging from the staircase with some of the killer's garb. Um, But in my mind, she saw more of that. And when I watched the film, I'm like, oh, it's just a split second where the killer is on the screen. And it's not more than that. I I could have sworn that, you know, there was a, a couple of seconds where we saw a full head to toe silhouette. Is it the edit you watched? No, I mean, I I watched three or four different versions, plus the Arrow video is, you know, supposed to be the, you know, she walks out and she sees, all she sees is a shape coming around the stairs, and she looks and she screams and she runs away, and we don't see the figure any more than that. So, um, anyway, she closes the door um, and locks it, and then, um, let's see, I got my notes here. Um, she sees the killer walking up the steps. She gets on the phone and tries to call somebody, but the killer um, cuts the phone line. Um, Julia makes sure that the door is locked. 
But the killer is up by the door at this point, and he whispers and says, you'll never leave this, you'll never leave alive. Julia tries to break through the major window with the candelabra, um, but it doesn't work. Um, and at that point, the lights go out, which is makes it even more intense. Julia barricades the door um, with some sort of like piece of That's furniture so yeah. that the killer can't come through the door. And then um, she goes into the bathroom and tries to get out through that window, but realizes that there are bars on the door. And now there's no escape. And this is really an intense scene. Like there's only one way out. The killer is standing there. There's no other way out. And <clears throat> he's definitely trying to come in. And she's kind of reserved to the idea that she's doomed. Um, she's tried everything that she can to escape and can't. And out of desperation, she kind of like falls on the floor and, and, you know, uh, goes through this moment of, of, you know, helplessness. Um, but at this point, the killer, um, because he can't get through the door because she's barricaded it with like a piece of furniture or the dresser or whatever, he starts to take this dagger and hammer it through the door. And, you know, it's very symbolic, you know, you've got the penetration of the knife, um, coming through in the gleaming blade and, you know, the psychosexual aspects of this whole thing. Um, Julia writhe, writhing on the floor, eventually finds her way towards a drawer in the kitchen where she finds a, a pair of scissors and she heads towards the door, which now has a hole in it because the killer has, um, burrowed a hole. Yeah, he, he he pushed a hole through with the with the dagger, and she tries to attack. And you can see, like you said, Matt, his eye, um, looking through the hole in the door. And it's a good question: which killer is this? If we knew what color, um, uh, the Ranieri woman's eyes were, we could we could tell. Um, but Argento does this cool thing where he kind of puts the camera on the scissors and um, it guides itself towards the hole and she tries to stab through the hole and misses like a typical fucking woman. Of no. course, of course. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Me too. Me too. Um, Women know how to find the hole. Trust me. <laughs> so, Julia is um, beside herself and it appears that when she tried to attack through the hole with the scissors at the very last moment, Sam came home. Now, where were the bodyguards? That's How did the killer get out of there if Sam came home? The killer got out of there if Sam came home and how did he get in in the first place if they're being watched all the time? Yeah. Typical Italian police just sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> just like the cops in the park when the chick's walking through the park. They're just sitting there smoking their motherfucking cigarettes. Their fucking Bud Light cigarettes. <laughs> I was waiting for Al to say something, but oh well. 
Oh um, no, I'm believe <laughs> I'm I'm on your side with this. But so the scene fades out. Um, I was gonna ask you, did yours fade? Because like I'm like I don't remember it just fading to black. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's she's kind of writhing with her hands on the dresser, which is in front of the door and in some sort of exhausted, whatever. And then it fades out. And then we fade into the, um, the candelabra stuck in the window. And she wakes up morning and it's morning. Yeah. Well, it's not morning. It's like four in the afternoon. Okay. But when the attack started, it was, wasn't it nighttime? Yeah. Right. So she okay. passed out, and I guess Sam came in. And came in how? Because the furniture was still blockading the door. But yeah. he had a key. What to what? Okay. A fucking dresser. The keys. Yeah, the key's not going to move the furniture. Well, does the door em- open to the inside? It does. Oh, That's okay. the only way it makes sense if she. Yeah. Like, why else would she put the fucking dresser in front of the Right. Door? Right. Right. <laughs> Okay, but beyond that, you have there's this homicidal attack on uh, Julia. Um, Sam comes home and interrupts it or stops it, whatever. The the killer runs away and they stay there and spend the night. They just go to sleep and wake up the next morning like, oh, here's your coffee. Wow, that was kooky last night, wasn't it? Oh, fuck, I thought I was dead for sure. Anyway, what time's our flight? I mean. Like, I know you almost got fucking murdered last night, but I ate a fucking cat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, where's that metronome? <laughs> I'm you sorry. We already packed the metronome. No there's, there's no more sexy time until we get to New York. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this whole thing was a bit weird for me right here. Like, Al is 100% right on all of this shit. Well, I mean, my interpretation is that she passed out. Sam got in however he got in. He made his way over the dresser and found her passed out, put her in bed. And then she just um, stayed so that way. Like he didn't disturb her at any for any reason until she woke up. She had to have gotten up to move the fucking dresser. Like, I'm not trying to talk shit, but I don't I don't know if Sam's the strongest fucking dude on the planet here to be able to push that door and the dresser out of the way. He was probably like, baby, wake up. I need you to move the shit so I can fucking get in. <laughs> and then she probably yelled at him for like an hour and a half. And Argento doesn't like hearing women yell. So he's like, I'm not going to film this part. This is boring. I don't care about this. So what's interesting is after <laughs> after this scene begins and Julia's like, hey, Sam, where are you? And Sam's like cooking eggs or something in the, in the other room. And he's like, hey, yeah, well, you've been sleeping for a long time and we missed our flight. It's 430 in the afternoon. And then they cut to Carlo and his eye through the hole and now that you guys have put that seed in my brain that they're still trying to you know uh, uh 
they're still trying to what the fuck is the word I'm looking for? It, they're 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 trying they're trying to distract you from the idea that you know it's who who is it? You know Carlo's looking through the through the thing and he says hey peeping Tom ah and he comes in and um they they still have no suspicion that Carlo has anything to do with anything but he comes in with another one of those cigars in his hand yeah and he's like uh you know you didn't get my call yesterday i know um that sound that was from the tape um it's very peculiar it's from a bird and i wrote it down um Cora were where did I write it down? I guess I didn't. Anyway, the bird that they refer to in the film is not actually the bird. If you look up that bird, it's a completely different bird in Uh. the zoo. When they show the bird, it's a crane. It's some type of crane. Um, But the funny thing is that they describe the bird as a bird with feathers that look like glass. And when they show you the bird that's in the zoo, that's supposed to be a representation of this bird, it doesn't have feathers that look like glass at all. It's no, just you, you know, can kill witches with it. Yeah, right, right, exactly. You could kill a, a mater mater superiorum or whatever yeah. her name is. Mm. Um, but <laughs> you know, there's this interesting scene where, or this this comical scene where, um, Sam is pouring some J and B for Carlo and Carlo's telling him about the bird. And he's like, wait a minute. You know, they, they have a bird like this in the zoo in Italy. And, uh, Sam is continues to pour the J and B until it spills. I I wrote a book about birds. (laughs) I know these things. Oh shit. It's been right here this whole time. How did I miss this? Right. Oh my God. A fucking bird. And I just happen to be friends with Carlo, who works at the bird stuffing factory. Oh, my God. And he didn't notice when he went to talk to Alberto earlier in the film that he was right next to the zoo. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All of these things are just pointing into a certain direction but sam is too fucking stupid to know what the fuck's happening yeah 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 Mm -hmm. yeah you make the point in episode one of the podcast that sam is a terrible detective and now i am completely on your side with this because all of the signs are there and sam decides to go off on these other tangents with so long and Berto Consalti and everything else. Yeah, but, I remember you gave me a lot of shit about my takes on this movie. <laughs> so that means a lot to me that you know that you're wrong. Oh, so. yeah. Well, <laughs> I still think this is one of the best Jolly uh, ever made. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I be- I agree with the fact that or that I that that I think that Sam is a good detective, you know. I mean, um, it's no Umberto Lenzi, you know. Let's right. Real here. Well, he invented the Jalo. I mean, oh, of course. Let's yeah. let's, let's, yeah. let's let's call a spade a spade. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so they go out to the zoo and they see the bird. And once they see the bird, Sam says, "Oh my God, 
There's the fucking blood ivy. There's the fourth floor, which is really the third floor because the ground floor is the first floor. And that's where the Ranieri's live. Holy shit. And I know that the fucking phone is by the window. It's all coming together now. So. And he ditches his chick and his friend. And they have to fucking chase after him because, again, he's a piece of (laughs) fucking human being. Well, that's partly because he hears screaming coming from the window, right? So they all go running up. And the the police officer like, come on, get out of the way. Leave it to us. We know how to break down doors. I don't know. I'm just saying saying this for me, dude. Like, I don't know if this is just my interpretation of what things are like in Italy. But if you're not hearing – people screaming from windows in Italy, you might not be in Italy. Is, is that a fair <laughs> statement? I can't answer that. Al, is that, is that pretty accurate? Like men and women yell at each other through windows all the time in Italy? Uh, not where I am right now, but when I lived further south in uh, the early 80s, it was pretty common. To hear people screaming all the time. So why is he like in such a hurry to get over there? Like that could just be like, like you, you fucking broken egg, you stupid fuck. I'm going to kill you with this fork. I don't know. know, Most of the stuff in this movie doesn't make sense to me. And (laughs) so anything that doesn't make sense to anybody else, don't blame Italy for it because. Right. It's Argento's fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So he ditches. Right, so the, so, so, yeah. Right. So he ditches. Like he he runs out, and Carlo and and Julia follow suit. The 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 uh, police officers chase him. They they break into the room, and now we see that uh, Alberto and um, what's her name? Monica. Monica are in another struggle. Um, but as soon as the cops break in, Monica is is kind of breaks off from the struggle. She runs over to Sam and, you know, he grabs her in, 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 a, in a way that kind of says, hey, I'm here to protect you. And um, there's a struggle ensues. But what what is important to see in this scene is that so many things happen at the same time. Like, yeah. Monica like leaves. She runs out. Um, and Julia is looking in both directions. She's looking at Sam. She's looking at Alberto. She's looking at Carlo. And Carlo's like, come on, come on, come on, come with me. And so it looks like or it appears that Carlo and Julia chase Monica wherever she's going. And um that part of it like is on the screen for a few seconds and if you're not paying attention you wouldn't even notice that it was happening meanwhile um alberto has got the knife and he's like don't come any closer and he heads towards the window and somehow he manages to fall out of the window um but he's hanging on by a thread and the cops and sam try to pull him up and he's like no please i don't want to die but eventually he falls to his death. And I, you know, I think that you guys were talking about this in episode one of the podcast that they dropped a camera out of the window um, to do this shot. And 
it, it kind of bounces when it hits the ground for a second. Well, it doesn't hit the ground. It's on like a rope. So it goes down and then oh, okay. tightens up. The camera pops up like they should have cut that a little sooner. OK, well, they do like edit it back to the same kind of shot. But then they the camera moves around and we eventually see that Alberto is laying dead or almost dead on the pavement on the sidewalk. He's got blood coming out of his mouth and his nose and uh, Marcini is there. They got a tape recorder and he says, um, it was me. I killed all the murder. I, you know, I murdered all the women. I did it. Um, please take care of my wife. And then he dies. And, um, the, the thing I wanted to point out though, that I thought was an important thing in that little second where a million things are happening. Um, Alberto has the knife in his right hand because I'm assuming he wrestled it out of her hand because she was probably trying to stab him or whatever the fuck they fight about. Who knows? And when the cops look at him, he looks down at his hands and then moves the knife into his left hand. Oh, yeah. Look at that. That's very cool. So that was a neat little like attention to detail that I thought was really cool. Yeah. I'm just noticing that now he's got it in his right hand. He looks down, he looks up, he switches his hands. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Hmm. Huh? See, this is why we need Matt on the podcast. <laughs> so I, so I could point that one thing out. That's cool, man. I, I never noticed that ever. Um, yeah, because now that he has the knife, if he's going to do anything with it effectively, he needs to switch hands. But right? wait, wait, wait. If he caught the cigarettes with his left hand, reflexively, he is left-handed, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, so Okay, so we're saying that just by accident or by uh chance during the fight when he finally got the knife out of uh monica's hands he was using his right hand right but he wanted he didn't want the cops to assume he was right-handed so he switched it to his left no i think he was knowing that they're because didn't he know they were looking for a left-handed dude yeah so if he wasn't attacking his wife with his knife in his left hand like would that be more of a defensive thing Instead okay. of him being the attack. oh, okay. So you're saying he switched hands not to make them think he's left-handed, but to make them think that he was the aggressor. Yeah, I just think that okay. they were in some sort of a um a, a fight. She was attacking him again, just like the just like the time in the art gallery. Yeah, and, at the very beginning. And when they break in, he grabs the knife out of her hand with his right hand. But as soon as they corner him and she walks away, he's now on the defensive and he's going to have right. to defend himself. And so he switches hands so he can have the knife in his dominant hand. Yeah, but if so he was the one who was aggressing against her when they got there, the knife would have already been in his left hand. But I don't right. think he was. I think it was her again. Well, no, like, I agree. And I think he agrees. And he was just trying to make the cops 
because he doesn't want her to go to jail. Right. Like he wants to like if he's going to get caught, he wants to get caught and have her go free. Right. Yeah. No. Okay, so why are they fighting and why were they fighting in the gallery at the beginning? Because they're nuts. That's okay. <laughs> like, like when I was listening to Matt and Eric talk about why are they fighting and, and you know, coming up with this whole idea of, you know, this and that and this. And that, I'm like, no, they're both nuts. They're both psychotic. And at any given point, they could lapse into psychosis and decide to kill each other because they're both nuts. And so that's what the fight was about in the art gallery. And that's what the fight is about going on over here. Like they're just, they, you know, you, you snap your fingers and all of a sudden, you know, one person decides that they want to kill the other person because they're crazy. Right. I, I, you know, I'm just being simplistic, but that's what I think it is. It's a very scientific. Uh, <laughs> and I, I like it's probably, <laughs> probably holds a lot of water for sure. They're you, just fucking nuts. That's yeah. why they're doing this. I mean, they're nuts to be doing this in the first place. But did you notice after Alberto falls and the camera, you know, the, the camera falls and then they cut um, and they, they make this pan. They show his foot and his sock and the blanket that's covering him. And then it looks like there's some sort of IV in his yeah. arm. Like he's been there a bit. They're trying yeah. to keep him alive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been long enough for the police to run to the trunk of their car and pull out the tape recorder. Right, right, right. And the ambulance gets there and yeah. everyone's there. Okay. So now we have the ending. Um, Well, almost the ending, but we have the well, ending. So he walks by a super hot chick next to the ambulance, like doing her hair in the fucking mirror. And I yeah. just... I would like to acknowledge her existence. Well, I think that from his vantage point, he might have thought for a second that that was Julia. Yeah. And this is the part of the movie I don't like. And this is where Argento fucks with me in a lot of movies (laughs) where it's like, oh, you think the movie's over? Well, fuck you. I'm going to show you 10 minutes of this douchebag walking around. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. And you're going to love it. So continue to swallow my jizz. <laughs> it drives me absolutely crazy. Yeah, but I think at the time it's like, you know, most of the audience was saying, okay, this is all wrapped up now. Um, and the movie's over because we don't know. We don't have a, a video that tells us, hey, there's 15 more minutes. Yeah. Right. They're in the theater and they're watching this and they're like, okay, it's all wrapped up. But wait a minute. Where did Julia go? Um, Sam's trying to find out, you know, um, what the fuck happened to, to my girlfriend and, and also Carlo smart ass guy in the theater who goes, wait, there's two killers. <laughs> Don't forget. Like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. So Sam goes on, you know, he's at the point now where he can't really do any detective work. That's somewhat logical. He has no ability whatsoever. All he can do is just go from one person to the next and say, hey, have, have you, you seen, seen a blonde, blonde woman? skirt, <laughs> wearing sexy ass boots. And they're like, yeah, every fucking chick in Italy looks yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. 
And there's this really awesome um, visual that um, starts with Sam standing on the steps. And I guess they used a crane with a camera on it to um, pan up and over the skyline. You see the the river or whatever that is um, and a bridge. And then you see the cityscape. And then we zoom back in on another flat. Um, and then they cut to the black gloves. Mm-hmm. And so in just in case you were wondering, no, the killer has not been found yet. Um, and if you're paying attention to the fact that there are two killers, you should have already known that, you know, this hasn't this isn't over yet. So um, Sam continues to um, walk around and ask people for. The location of have you seen this woman have you seen this woman have you seen this woman um he goes into this building which i think he walks in at the basement level it looks like a you know a jail it looks like a jail or a cellar or both and he sees a staircase going up he ascends um and then my youtube is interrupted by um a nationwide is on your side commercial. Okay. Um, and then uh, he finds, he goes into this room and in the room, it's dark. He tries a couple of things to turn the lights on. They don't work. There's a curtain. Um, and we are, t- we are shown that Julia is there. Yeah. And she doesn't fucking say a word. She's tied up. She's underneath the bed somehow or another. She can't even go. To let him know that she's there. Um, Or kick her feet or do anything. Or anything, right. Uh, um, And then we see fucking... The painting. Well, the painting, but then um, Carlo. Yeah, so he... This this is when I yelled, I was right! (laughs) The first time I saw this. Well, yeah, because at this point, you know, it's still possible that Carlo is the man because, you know, Julia and Carlo ran away together. Whereas Carlo, he stole the tape, all this other stuff. And there he is sitting in a chair with a knife and the real killer went to the. Uh, went to the trouble of setting him up this way. I don't know why. Um, but anyway, there's. In yes. making him grin like a maniac. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as soon as Sam sees him, he's like, what have you done to Julia? What have you done to Julia? Um, and then Carlo falls over and it turns out that he's been like stabbed in the back of the neck with a dagger. Um, but again, you know, um, you need to suspend disbelief here. If you want to start talking about why did the killer, position carlo in this way with the dagger in his hand and how did she throw a big old fat ass on top of this guy right yeah well let's put that aside because it will never be it's kind of stupid um all of a sudden we hear the laughter and this is the big reveal and in previous podcasts we would have tried our best to get to this point without saying who the killer was seriously Um, but now we're smarter than that because everyone has seen this movie um and you know what it 
it's the the black raincoat and the hat and we see emerging from the shadow um monica ranieri and she's laughing like a crazy person and she doesn't say anything um but sam is finally put in a position where he can reconcile this vision that he's been trying to reconcile throughout the whole film which is guess what it was you that had the knife in your hand not the guy with the black gloves and the raincoat and the hat and you were the one that was trying to kill the other guy um that's what i knew i had seen and then he says that a second time as he runs towards the door yeah because then he sees his girlfriend all beat to shit and fucked up and he's like later bitch i gotta go chase this redhead and I don't think he sees her. Does he see her? I would think so. Like, she's still that, looking for your fucking girlfriend. If you were looking for your girlfriend. Well, at the end or after they rescue him from the, from the, um, whatever, whatever that is, that, that sculpture, he says, Oh, Julia. Yeah. And the, the you know, anyway, well, we'll get there. Um, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, he, he sees her out the window. She goes into another door. Um, he follows down. He goes through the door. And then they have this awesome scene where um, all you see is the silhouette of Sam and the yellow kind of light coming from the background of the door. And everything yeah. else is dark. Nice shot. Uh, yeah, it's so cool. And then all of a sudden, the lights fade in. And Sam is standing right in front of that giant square sculpture and monica is standing above it and she cuts the rope and this and the sculpture falls on him luckily it doesn't fall him in fall on him in any sort of way where he gets penetrated by any of the spikes um, because if that happened he'd be dead for sure <laughs> um so she comes down the stairs and she starts laughing she doesn't really say anything or explain anything like you would expect in a giallo. Um, she just kind of takes her knife and tortures them a little bit and stands on top of the sculpture and jumps up and down and the spikes get lower and lower. But again, you know, he's not really getting penetrated. He's just trapped. And then she says, you know, you're going to die just like all the others. And she raises her hand to... Um, Ask a question to, to, <laughs> to um, for the killing blow. And then we see the karate chop judo chop come in. Where and, the fuck did the cops come from? She would well, have to see them right. walk through that same door because the fucking other big doors were shut and like they had the curtains drawn and shit. The fishbowl. Well, if. Once they turned on the lights, once, I mean, who turned on the lights? Monica turned on the lights? Yeah. So she turned on the lights, and this was something that everybody could see from the street. No, there was a curtain over the window. Oh, I didn't see that. In front of the aquarium? Yeah, I'll look back. I, I'm I'm on my fourth watch through of this now today. <laughs> 
I'll be able to check it out. But I did notice something that I feel really stupid for not pointing out before. And I don't remember if I did in the first episode. Um, her trench coat is patent leather, so it's shiny. Yeah. And I don't know if his was patent leather. The, yeah. oh. So that might be a thing that would tell you, like, who's killing who, if you can't tell by the height. Okay. So... Hmm. For anyone who gives two shits, you can go back. And <laughs> so the cops come in. Um, they uh, hoist the sculpture up so that Sam can be um, rescued. And... That is basically it. Um, Morrissey says, you know, we found Julia. She's okay. Um, they hug it out like you do. And then we are treated to this newscast. And in episode one of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast, Matt takes a moment to admire how great the desk is in this scene. But now we're in like this really weird news studio or something. And it has the bitchinest, sexiest white desk I have ever seen. Did you get a look at that desk that the host was behind? Yeah, I wanted to call Ikea and see if oh, we had that one. It stuff. totally looks like a weird Ikea desk. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I love that desk. I would love to have it. He also takes a moment to compare the size of Morosini to the man to uh, in the other chair who explains the psychological thing. He they says look ridiculous next to each other. His hands are as big as basketballs. The guy sitting next to him was like fucking 12 feet tall and had hands the size of freaking basketballs, dude. It was just like <laughs> the weirdest, like, and the inspector's all hunched over looking like a little, like, weird crippled baby. And then there's this, like, giant dude. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have this, this ending, which, so again... Bad. We've talked about this a million times. This is reminiscent of Psycho, where after they capture Norman Bates and he's in custody, um, we have the the little soliloquy by the psychologist who talks about, you know, why and what the motive was. And they recreated this here. Um, The funny part is that uh, Morosini is tongue tied beyond belief. He can't even form two words, put two words together. And I think this is supposed to basically be, uh, uh, you know, the message here is that, you know, his job is the practical, his job is solving crimes. Um, but as far as explaining things, he's. No, it's an indictment on the uh, investigation. Like, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. The amateur detective didn't know what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> you watching this have no idea what the fuck just happened. So to make you not ask for your money back, this giant <laughs> is going to tell you what the fuck just happened. <laughs> it's just bad storytelling, dude. Uh, 
but they knew it was bad storytelling, and that's why they made Morrissey stutter. Is that what you're saying? No, I just think Morrissey stuttered because he actually did not know what the fuck was going on. Whether <laughs> we're talking about the character or the actor, the actor was probably like, "What the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> like, I don't understand anything that's fucking happening right now." <laughs> Well, the psychologist goes on to explain that what happened here was that Monica was attacked 10 years ago. And there just happened to be a painting commemorating the attack that was made unbeknownst to her. She recovered from the situation, but 10 years later noticed the painting in an art gallery and it put her into a relapse of her psychosis but instead of identifying with the killer which or i'm sorry instead of identifying with the with the victim which she was she identified with the killer and started killing people um and then he, basically the throwaway line is um that the husband helped her out and because of his psych you know because of his um relationship with monica he is guilty of psychosis by association um, association. He straight up called him a homicidal fucking psychopath. Right. So there we have our closure. But here's the thing that Matt says in episode one that Uh-oh. I really love. And it's so awesome. They intersperse the psychologist explaining things with Julia and Sam on the plane and Matt in 10 years ago, Matt said, <laughs> said, this is a, a foreshadowing of the fact that when they get back to New York, Julia is going to be the new killer. And huh. that killed me because I know that most of these films, they just, they're looking for an ending. It's a happy one. Right. There's no sequel, Bird Crystal Plumage Part Two. But at that particular time when you guys recorded the podcast, that's what you said. And and dude, it's such a great idea that, you know, the the psychologist is explaining the motive of the killer and at, while he's saying the things that Monica was doing and why she did them, they're showing Julia and she's sitting on the plane. And then they show Sam and he's sitting on the plane. And the way they that is ugly as fuck, though, I'm, I'm going to say that. But the the idea behind what I said is still true. Like, I believe that. I mean, it's such a cool idea that, you know, I, I, I really think that back in 1970, when they made films like this, they got to the closure and it was over. But, yeah. But from our 80s and 90s sensibility we're like okay what comes next you know well what i'm really curious about is if the screaming mimi ends with something kind of like that where the people who survive the event um like it kind of alludes to the fact that this may be like a ongoing thing that like the trauma creates more murderers and creates more crime and all this other shit. Yeah. 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 Hmm. But like, honestly, like I stole that idea that I had. And uh, <laughs> so relapse of the crystal pubis is the <laughs> in that series. <laughs> uh, 
have to go back and read that. Oh shit. So that that's the end. End credits roll, and you know, there's this little voiceover of "Go to Italy," and you know, um, nothing ever happens here. Never ever, nothing ever happens in Italy. But you know, um, I love watching this movie for so many different reasons. Partly because I've seen it so many times. Um, partly because I had a really good copy on Blu-ray and a giant TV to watch it on. But also because um, I'm just looking at this and watching and and realizing, you know, how much Argento and his group um, took from all the films that came before this and pulled it all together in some sort of a potpourri of, of you know, the greatest hits of thriller from, you know, from the from the proto period. And um, I, I love it. I, you know, it's one you know of my favorite movies. That? You know who else thinks that is fucking um. Umberto Lenzi. No, he does not think that. He thinks that Argento took everything that he did earlier <laughs> and like tried to create a genre. Because Lenzi created Jalo, and we all know this. Yes. Well, yes, that um Lenzi was, you know, the unsung hero. Yeah, 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 for real. But yeah, it's still like it doesn't matter how much time we spend talking about the stupidity of the plot and the premise of why are they fighting in the beginning. I still love this movie. I really love it. It's really um, I like it. Yeah. And you can understand why it struck a chord with the audience because it's really entertaining even though it's nonsensical. It doesn't matter. Um and you can also understand why it spawned a whole bunch of imitations, you know, to come after it. Yeah. Okay, what so I think? have a question. What do you think, Al? One question I have. Berto, the painter, was telling uh, Sam that that painting was based on a true story about a woman who was attacked and almost killed or something like that. Are we supposed to think that that was Monica? Yeah. The true story that he was referring to. Yeah. Okay. But what I don't understand is how come Monica didn't see that painting, like have a, like a relapse or whatever, and then go kill the fucking artist. No, she, she killed the woman who sold her the painting. Well, I know, but like, if you're going to go that, I mean, I don't know. Like, I know she just wants to kill women because that's the whole thing. Like she's taking charge of the whatever. I don't know. I just think cat eater should have fucking got it in the fucking afro. <laughs> she probably know? didn't even know, like, you know, like it's, it's a but crime of passion. It, it's like an impulsive reaction. But he said he knew her. Right. Yeah. So if he's profiting off of her pain. <laughs> I think like like my first stop would be his fucking head, you know. But He's I'm, profiting off of her pain because she or her husband bought the damn painting, right? Yeah. Okay. So what? seeing this <sighs> painting, which Dude. depicts her own attack years before, triggers her to become some psycho killer, but she has this uh this murderer's lair (laughs) 
in some empty building where she puts the painting up on the wall so she can stare at it. Well, she has the wherewithal to buy the painting at the same time that she's going to pursue the clerk who sold it to her and kill her. Like Maybe was she, she was know. she running she, down the street holding the painting in one hand and a dagger in the other? Like she she went back later. <laughs> she didn't do it at the same time. <laughs> uh, or did she send her husband to buy it? Or I don't. If you're uh, if you're going to kill anybody because of the painting, <laughs> start with the painter. Exactly. <laughs> That's I, what Matt said. On the same page. Do it for the cats. Uh. <laughs> Like, just think of all the pussy you can save. Yeah. So what have you learned in 10 years of this podcast? I've learned that um, Argento is, favors style over substance. <laughs> <laughs> Something pointed out in the very first episode. <laughs> I, I learned this is something I can like throw out there. I learned that as affluent as Italy was in the late '60s and throughout the '70s in terms of fashion and the jet set and the whole fucking thing that by the 80s they did not know what the fuck they were doing and people were just letting them continue to be king touch shit when it comes to fashion and stuff because they were doing well for so long and people were just like going god is this look okay i don't think it looks well it's italy let's just you know like we ruined edwidge's hair but that's fine like this is Italy. Everything's like, it'll be okay. And um, everyone gave them a lot of breaks all through the eighties. And it wasn't until the nineties when people were like, God, I don't think they know what they're really doing right here with this anymore. So that's my thought. You learned this from the podcast. Like seriously. Wow. Yeah. Just watching like movies from the sixties, seventies and (laughs) eighties. Like if you look at Jali from the eighties, the women are not attractive. Their hair oh. looks like shit. Their makeup is awful and their clothes are fucking horrendous. And just the interior design is bad. And everything went from fucking amazing, <clears throat> like um, kind of bossa nova e music to fucking like moog fucking goblin. Yeah. Offs and shit, and just like a bunch every, of synth, synth synthesizer yeah, music, everything changed, and it yeah. just. Um, but I think the heart of the change was the um, the astronomical beauty and lush fucking everything. Right. Stopped. Yeah. <laughs> Which is weird because the eighties like at least in American culture was like the decade of excess and decadence and all this shit. So the fact that, um, like it just feels like Italy dropped the ball on that. But for some reason, the style was a little bit more conservative and new, new wavy compared to like the hippie mid-century modern style. Yeah. That you see in the 70s. 
it's just weird because like the 80s, I feel like in America still had a lot of like that Tomorrowland futurism and American culture and design. Whereas in Italy, I feel like it just is not there anymore. Yeah. Like, And I don't know if it's like a I don't want to just make this a politics thing, but like if the political culture in Italy changed in the 80s and that like went to a more conservative um, rule and that like filtered down through like everything from Italy. Like well, I know this is like weird and lofty, but like, I mean, that's I, kind of I, what I've been feeling. I think that, you know, Italy was influenced by what was going on in America during the seventies. And again, in better. the eighties, like if you think about the fact that, you know, okay, the Jalo films influenced the slashers and the slashers became really important in the eighties. And if you, if you, if you look at the, the slashers as well as what was pop in pop culture in America during the eighties, like flash dance and break dancing and that sort of thing, like Italian filmmakers were probably trying to cash in on that style and it wasn't working for them. Um, I mean, it was probably at the time working for them, but you, know, you look back on it now and you say, well, it was really kind of, you know, a, a, a misfire. Um, you know, look at Murder Rock, which is a Fulci film, which is basically Fulci trying to recreate Flashdance and turn it into a Giallo slasher. Um, you know, uh, and it's corny as hell. Yeah. Um, and it's corny, like like these films are corny to a certain extent because you know obviously we sit and pick them apart and whatnot, but they have a style that is undeniable. And when it comes to the '80s style, it, it didn't age well. Like well, the '70s you know, and '60s style aged aged wonderfully, but the yeah. '80s '80s style did not. Well, I know a lot of the filmmakers from the '60s and '70s by the late '70s were like moving more towards television because it was continuous steady work that was paying very right, well. Right, right, So like, I don't know if that has anything else to do with it. You had like the younger guns come in and then like, I don't think Argento really wanted to do TV because I think he got off on the fact that he was a rock star in America. Whereas yeah. like Martino and guys like that did not get that treatment here. Yeah. One Argento did a little bit of TV, but he stick he stuck with movies, and Martino did a lot of TV. Yeah. What do you think, Al? Yeah, am I am I talking shit, Al? Help me out here. Well, I don't know if all of that is exclusive to Italy. I think it has more to do with the '80s everywhere. Yeah. Because yeah, if yeah. you look at Sybil Shepherd in Taxi Driver, and then look at Sybil Shepherd on Moonlighting. That's as different as Edwige Fenech in yeah. um, Case of the Bloody Iris compared to oh, so beautiful. Uh, what was that one Phantom of Death that she was in in like the late 80s? Yeah, she had an awful perm for a while there that was just like breaking my fucking heart, dude. Yeah, yeah. it's okay. 
I don't know. So basically, like, the thing I learned was, like, I like Jalo, but I like a very specific, like, brand of my Jally. You know? And, like, I knew before, too, because, like, when we would talk about it, like, I liked the mid-century modern jet set fashion whole fucking thing and whenever we would watch movies that were like more of the baroque or the fucking like old village kind of shit like i wasn't into it as much yeah you know what i'm saying so like i know that there's that whole thing for me but um i also don't like um gore for gore's sake and someone like Lindsay, for example, is just like kind of like a shock meister kind of thing. Yeah. Whether it's like ridiculous murder scenes or fucking like animals being tortured or whatever. It's just like good fucking God. Um, I just I like my shit a little more classy. Yeah. I mean, it's cool to know where your tastes lie. And being able to hone those in and shit like that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, But I, how cool is it that in this ridiculously specific subgenre of Jalo, you can still say, you know, there are subcategories within that that totally. I <laughs> that I, you know, I that I gravitate towards. You know, yeah, like not every movie is going to be strip nude for your killer. And I have to understand you that. have to accept that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, um, Al and I spent a lot of time talking about this film called The Murder Clinic from 1967, maybe. And it's pretty close to a giallo as far as its format is concerned. But it's a period piece and it's from the 1800s. And I. Oh. I don't get off on period pieces. I don't like it. Um, but the more I watch the film, the more I appreciate how good it is, even yeah. though I don't have a tendency to gravitate towards films like that. So, um, and, and you know, there aren't that many um, films that fall under the giallo category that also fall under the category of period pieces. Um, so it is very unique in that regard. And probably worth a watch for people who haven't seen it. But yeah, I can't think of any other ones. Like I think maybe um, Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye might be, you know, like a, a, a period piece. I'm trying to think of any other ones that are from the past. You know, most of them and the ones that I like are the ones that are modern for the time when they were made. Oh, wait, wait. Bloodsucker. Yeah. Bloodsucker leads the dance. Head. Yeah. Yeah. That- that one's a period piece, ain't it? I think so. Yeah. And a terrible, terrible film. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can think of one, but it's Spanish, so I don't know if that would do well as a Jalo. Well, I isn't, mean, it's, isn't eyeball Spanish? Could we go into that hole? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then... Well, they they I go can to think Spain. Of a Spanish Jalo period piece, but it was made before Bird came out, so that would be a step backwards, maybe into the proto Jalo. But it's a lot more Jalo than the protos that we did. What what film are you talking about? It's called The House That Screamed. Okay, 
I've never seen that. Hmm. It has um, Christina Galbo is in it, and she was in What Have You Done to Solange? She was the teacher's girlfriend that was with him on the boat when she saw Ugh. somebody getting killed. Oh, yeah. she's so hot. Well, <laughs> she's, she's good. <laughs> I mean, that there's a good reason to watch it. I mean, come on. I mean, it's no, she's no Femme Benusi, Al, but come on. No, well, there's only one of those. <laughs> is, that, is that your favorite, Al? Uh, lately. Yeah. <laughs> good choice, dude. Good choice. Don't forget about any ass man. Or wait, yeah, what but... about asshole face? <laughs> no, there's there's an actress named Any Ass Man, and she's in a movie called um Date No No. She she's was in, in a... Death Knocks twice. She was in Death Knocks twice, but she had a very small part in um the insatiables which is where we saw her for the first time and we're like holy shit she's the hottest yeah. girl in this whole movie and she's only on screen for 10 seconds yeah what's her name her name's any ass man i-n-i-a-s-s-m-a-n well she can have me and she's in a she's in death knocks twice which is the film i told al i can't bear to watch this anymore can we please play it can we please so watch something else save the movie she didn't save the movie no uh, and i think Cool. I think Femi Benusi was in Death Knocks twice also. Supposedly she's yeah, she's credited for that, but I don't remember seeing Along her, so. with Anita Ekberg, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, she was the one that was in French Sex Murders yeah. and La Dolce Vita. Is French Sex Murders the Humphrey Bogart fake dude? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, Barbara Brochet's in that too. Yeah. And she's in a muck, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, is she ever? Now we're she's all over. We've learned so much over the last ten years. <laughs> we have, <laughs> and it can, all comes down to um, we learned that girls are hot. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, dude. Uh, so, is there going to be a hundred more episodes? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's probably a hundred more films that I haven't seen. So, who knows? So all I know, all I know is I'm at the end of the year and um, I need to take a break from doing this for a little while. But this was so much fun. Yeah, it was and good. I'm, I'm glad that we did this. I've been in touch with um, Richard Glenn Schmidt, who wrote the book called oh, yeah. Jalo Meltdown. Yeah. And he is about to release Jalo Meltdown Part 2. And he sent me a copy of it and he wants to jump in on the cast um in january so i think um because i know his favorite jolly of all a jalo of all time is called the dead are alive aka the etruscan kills again um (laughs) that will probably be the film we talk about because i know he loves that more than anything so we may have him on the show to talk about his book and then talk about that film so i'm thinking that's where we go from here for the next episode al anything uh you want to add uh no i think i've said everything i had to say just uh (laughs) as a super fan turned uh sidekick i want to tell you guys congratulations on 10 years and 100 episodes (laughs) and here's to 100 more
Yeah. Well, it, we wouldn't have gotten to a hundred if you weren't part of it, dude. So you're not a sidekick. You're, For, you're, you're fully, in, you're, you're fully fledged engulfed in, in the insanity. Thanks everybody for listening. This is a long one, but uh, I think it was a lot of fun. Well worth it. And uh, yeah. All right. So um, with all due respect, Mr. Matt, can you please do us the honors of taking us out of here? uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Hanukkah. uh, Happy New Year. Ciao, ciao, everybody. Why do I fucking yell? Ciao, ciao, everybody. Fuck. Now you're supposed to say until next time. Oh, until <laughs> next time. Ciao, ciao, everybody. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Good song, dude. I love that song. Run, 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 run away. All right, well.